Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It is the 30th of October, year of our Lord, 2019. And I apologize for the lateness on this one, but we had some uh, unexpected severe weather down here where I live. 70 mile an hour straight winds, a couple tornadoes, and uh, we had what was called a trip back to the 18th century. Me and the white boys just say that we would have a great time in that era. But then, of course, we found out what it's like not to have power for long periods. And, um, yeah, no. No. I don't really want to go back to the uh, 18th century. I, I'm, I'm not good with that. That, that kind of sucked. Uh, most of Saturday into Sunday, and then most of Sunday, and then part of Monday. And yesterday was really the first full day we had power uh, nonstop. So I could actually get to uh, a podcast because I had no internet, no ability to, my, my computer was dead. Um, it, it was rough. Phone's dead. Unbelievable. But it was a cold weather front uh, marking in with that tropical depression that came up north and it came from the south, hit that cold air and produced some serious winds. There are still... Um, I think 10,000 people in Clarksville without power. And where I live, there's close to 1,500 now. It was 13,000 in the country uh, without power. And it was um, interesting. The system definitely got tested. The one positive about it, in my subdivision where I live, uh, I think they replaced 10 transformers. Uh, they were just getting blown, uh, but trees were down. It, it's a mess. And as we speak today, it is raining like crazy still. Uh, thank God no wind yet. That was supposed to come with it. And then we get the deep freeze. Um, poor trick-or-treaters tomorrow night will be doing it in 27 degrees, which, you know, for most of you that live up north, that's nothing. But for the south, that's like minus 50. You know, that's, that's a cold day for uh, these poor trick-or-treaters. Uh, highs won't get out of the 50s for about 10 days. And that's February for the south of America. Uh, not complaining. Love it. I've got a bunch of wood stacked behind me. You know, the podcast uh, bunker down here in, in, uh, in the house is cordoned off into a room, and right behind me is a wood stove. So there's a pile about a rick of white birch stacked up. Um, it's in bags. So there's no bugs or anything like that. And um, <clears throat> it is ready to burn, and it shall start burning Thursday morning. Of all things, uh, I don't remember the last time I, well, I don't think I ever had a fire on Halloween. I don't think that's ever happened, but we will, um, definitely light one up because I think the high is going to be 47. So 47 and right. Good time. So today we're going to do a backwards, uh, podcast starting with, uh, Military Corner, uh, due to the taking out of an ISIS leader. And I really thought that was a good way to start because we have a lot of hypocrisy from the skiff. To the taking out of the ISIS, to a bunch of hate, 
Um, what we do for Dems, we don't do for Republicans. And it's really easy just to point out the hypocrisy in our media, in Democrats, on how we deal with big events. Um, when it's a Democrat, it is the greatest thing ever. When it's a Republican, why are you doing a victory lap? To the Skiff incident, when it's a sit-in, look at these patriotic Democrats. To we need to investigate and put all these motherfuckers in prison for breaking protocol and going on the Skiff. So that'll be today's podcast. So let's just get on into it and let's start with some military corner. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, and a terrorist who's responsible for the murder of thousands of innocent men, women, and children. It was nearly 10 years ago that a bright September day was darkened by the worst attack on the American people in our history. The images of 9-11 are seared into our national memory. Hijacked planes cutting through a cloudless September sky. The Twin Towers collapsing to the ground. Black smoke billowing up from the Pentagon. The wreckage of Flight 93 in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the actions of heroic citizens saved even more heartbreak and destruction. And yet we know that the worst images are those that were unseen to the world. The empty seat at the dinner table, the children who were forced to grow up without their mother or their father, parents who would never know the feeling of their child's embrace. But the United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden. It's rare that we're breaking in with good news. And that was one of those moments that you're breaking in with good news. It's a monumental event, but it was a piece of good news. People were cheering outside the White House. It is, when you think about it, not often do you get you get those opportunities where a breaking news event is something to celebrate. And there was something about that night in Washington, just seeing people spontaneously show up in, in Lafayette Square and, and outside the White House and, ta- and, and, and sort of chanting um, USA. It was something that the country needed. It's, the country is an individual. You needed for yourself. You needed the closure. This is something Obama actively pursued and actively wanted to happen and made the tough decision, which easily could have been a debacle. Yes, we all remember. Obama literally went over there, took OBL out himself. Chuck Todd, why won't President Obama use a bully pit to sell the Afghanistan war? Well, this is a case where the president has taken the most famous day, if you will, now in the war. The closest thing our country is ever going to have to VE Day or a VJ Day in this war which is V-O-B-L Day, right? Bin Laden Death Day, and he's using that anniversary to talk about the future of our security relationship in Afghanistan. WAPO. 
Great Obama. Obama's speech signified one great man taking down another. On Morning Joe, Carlson characterized the operation against Osama bin Laden as the moment when Professor Obama turned into General Obama and ran this incredible raid, which we now know he was golfing. He wasn't running shit. New York Times homepage pick. Little question. Obama presidency has changed forever, showing people dancing in the streets and Osama bin Laden's dead. After the terror attack September 11th, detainees gave us information on couriers. One courier in particular had our constant attention. Detainee gave us his nom de guerre, his pseudonym, and also identified the man as one of the few couriers trusted by bin Laden. This was the greatest day. Rewind. In Bush years, killing of our Iraqi al-Qaeda leader Zarqari greeted with media scowls. Do you remember that? It wasn't a good thing. It was... It's just going to produce other people, was what they said. Kind of sounds like what they said now. Jeremy, let me start with you. Eight and a half years after special forces killed Osama bin Laden, we now have the apparent death of the leader of ISIS, Baghdadi. What is the significance of this? Put it in some context for us. Well, whereas bin Laden was responsible for the death of 3,000 Americans, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi may not have been a household name in America, but he was the most important leader of ISIS, the terrorist organization that really had two elements, Willie. One was it established that land-based caliphate in the Middle East, but it also inspired many franchises, many offshoots, people inspired by ISIS and Baghdadi's charisma to conduct operations in France and all around the world. So I think this is symbolically very important. Whether it's militarily important really depends, because last week or in the last two weeks, President Trump made a decision that really took the foot off the neck of ISIS by taking the ground force that was containing them, the Kurds, and abandoning them. And that leads me to you, Chuck Todd. Chuck, we have heard that criticism, of course, over the last month of the President of the United States getting on the phone with President Erdogan in Turkey and effectively stepping aside in northern Syria. How does this news last night fit into all of that? Well, I think it's going to be a battle of I told you so's in some ways. In, in frankly, in the president's own circles, I think you're going to have some uh, who, who had warned the president, be careful, we shouldn't pull back our presence. They're going to say, see, our presence there, our ability to work with the Kurds, get the intelligence, that's how we got Baghdadi, and we're going to have to... Uh, be there and stay there and remain there to make sure ISIS doesn't uh, 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 reform. And I think President Trump's going to look at this and say, see, I can shrink the footprint and do this. Uh, I'll be curious to see his posture this morning, but it very much might have a mission accomplished feel to it on this. And I think rhetorically, the president's going to feel as if he has a, a chip to play here that says in this basically debate he's having with his own party and in some cases his own national security team to say hey um i I think i can win the political argument on this one we got al-baghdadi now terry the president has really been under tough scrutiny the impeachment inquiry members of his own party criticizing him for his decision in syria is this a big victory for the president Sure, it is a big victory for the president. It's also the kind of thing that Americans expect presidents to accomplish. I mean, it is hard to remember. I was in northern Iraq and Syria in 2014 when ISIS seemed unstoppable under al-Baghdadi's leadership. President Trump is the one uh, who decided to double down on eliminating their territorial gains. Now he's killed the leader. Uh, This is uh, the kind of presidential leadership that people do expect. 
Destroying him makes it extremely difficult for them to to uh, to operate it multilaterally in a wide variety of places, to coordinate activities in a wide variety of places. Whoever is going to take over, and undoubtedly they have somebody to take over, there's a series of people who might take over. Um, whoever it is has got a, a, a big job ahead of them, and when you... When you destroy a leader of an organization like this, it becomes fragmented. It becomes more difficult to, to deter them from doing things, but it comes, becomes much easier to take them out bit by bit. So this is, this is a very big deal, getting rid of this guy. We'll, we'll see what happens over the, the next few months or so. But I suspect we're going to see terrorist operations in a number of different countries where they can, where they can apply. Uh, you wanted to talk about how, yeah. yeah no, no, but I, I wonder here um, if this type of killing only reinforces the ideology of Baghdadi's followers and, in fact, strengthens oh, it. Well, it doesn't make it any easier for those of us who want to destroy the organization completely. All right. Let, um, those people Colonel, who, let's take a listen to Senator Lindsey Graham. We'll come back to you in just sure. a second. This raid was impeccable and could only have taken place with the acknowledgement and help of certain other nations and people. I want to thank the nations of Russia, Turkey, Syria, and Iraq. And I also want to thank the Syrian Kurds for certain support they were able to give us. This was a very, very dangerous mission. Thank you as well to the great intelligence professionals who helped make this very successful journey possible. I want to thank the soldiers and sailors, airmen and Marines involved in last night's operation. You are the very best there is anywhere in the world. No matter where you go, there is nobody even close. I want to thank General Mark Milley, and our Joint Chiefs of Staff. And I also want to thank our professionals who work in other agencies of the United States government and were critical to the mission's unbelievable success. Last night was a great night for the United States and for the world. And, and I can't help but notice, uh, General Clapper, that you might have been on his mind to a degree as well, given the fact that President Trump, at least twice uh, during that uh, press conference, uh, slammed what the intelligence community should not be doing, as opposed to what they should be doing. That's obviously a reference to the investigation uh, into uh, what exactly the Russians were claiming, uh, et cetera. Uh, twice he said that. Once he said that this is what they should be focused on. And then another time he talked about the intelligence community um, not doing what they should be doing. Uh, clearly a reference to the investigation into whether the, how the Russians were reaching out to his campaign. And combined with the fact that he did not thank his CIA director, uh, Gina Haspel, and did not thank his, his uh, director of national intelligence. Uh. It's like a flashback to the Bush years. Stephen Miller kind of sums up the way I look at it. It's fine if you want to point out Trump praised SEALs and not Obama for giving green light to get bin Laden as whataboutism. Just not if you're a journalist who's credited Obama and not the SEALs to begin with. That eliminates about 97% of you digging through tweets archives. Obama claimed the media and Obama praised Obama. 
That was really when I started hating Obama. Not on the level Trumpers, people who hate Trump are, not the resistance, but I just hated him. His walking around using soldiers as props. The motherfucker was an anti-war candidate. He hates the military. We all know that. We're low skill set pieces of shit to Professor Obama. But it was I took him out. The media instantly going into there's no way he can lose because he killed Obama or Sama. That's what he did. But this one, SNL mocks Trump bringing jobs back to ISIS. A new breaks as news breaks that we took him out. Clapper. What's going to be interesting is the extent to which this negatively affects ISIS or does it galvanize ISIS? The remnants of ISIS would still survive as an ideology and as a franchise in other places besides Syria. He added, ISIS is more than just Baghdad. He as important as he was. 14 to 18,000 fighters yet remaining in the franchise are branches in other places, notably Afghanistan, where, of course, we still have forces. John Harwood, it's great that Baghdadi is gone. Credit to the skill and bravery of the U.S. Special Forces. It's very unlikely to influence public opinion much since most Americans don't know who he is. Trump has claimed over and over that he's already obliterated ISIS. Mihadi Kassan, can a reporter right now please ask Donald Trump this? To clarify, Mr. President, exactly the same time you were abandoning the Syrian Kurds to be slaughtered and insulting them and telling us all that we weren't at Normandy, those same Kurds were helping you find Baghdadi? Steve Bashevsky, it's an accomplishment by U.S. Special Forces, Baghdadi is dead, full stop. Trump will still be impeached. The red-headed libertarian. How will MSNBC report the death of Baghdadi? I'll start. Trump ordered death of poor minority man and an in-depth look at this administration's rampant xenophobia. And boom, on cue, WAPO. The Washington Post changed headline on its al-Baghdadi obituary from Islamic State terrorist in chief to a stir religious scholar at helm of Islamic State. I shit you fucking not. First tweet, Al-Bakar al-Baghdadi, Islamic State terrorist in chief, dies at 48. They then went back and said, Abu Bakar al-Baghdadi, austere religious scholar at helm of Islamic State, dies at 48. Somebody joked, Mussolini, famed for his thick mustache, dies suddenly. That would have been WAPO in 1945. The Washington Post has now changed its description of ISIS, blah, 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 to terrorist-in-chief, to austere religious scholar. They ended up on extremist leader. Johnny Jones, let me assure you all this. You know, one of those who've actually fought in this war, this presser was candid and necessary description of the historic operation. American people should celebrate the killing of a villain and know that we will, will enact justice globally. Dana Shell Smith. This gruesome, vivid, and probably exaggerated description of dogs chasing down Baghdadi will endanger our personnel in the region. Dana. Combat's gruesome, vivid, and can get crazy as fuck. You can't sanitize it to make it sound better for you and your world of gumdrop lane. As much as you hate to credit our president with anything, it's a win for the country. Enjoy it. They then went through everything he said. Trump could not have heard whimpering and crying because there was no audio. And Esper and Milley refused to confirm those details. The assertion that Baghdadi died as a coward was contradicted by the fact that rather than being captured, he blew himself up. 
That's Max Boot from his article. A president who never heard a shot fired in anger reveled in Baghdadi's last moments, even claiming he died like a coward, whimpering and crying, screaming all the way. Trump could not possibly have heard whimpering and crying on the overheard imagery because there was no audio. And Defense Secretary Esper and Mar- General Mark Milley, the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, pointedly refused to confirm those details. The assertion that Baghdadi died as a coward was in any case contradicted by the fact that rather be captured, he blew himself up. And why? Why all this? A, they can't give them a win. And we're in election time. Come on, they use stuff like this, even though they're not military. They hate the military. They use this as election fodder. So they're so scared he'll have a win, and the American people go, well, look at that, he killed al-Baghdadi. That they have to down it. They can't give him credit. It might help them with the election. Our media is all about framing. Our country is a cesspool when a Republican is president. And that is all due to that president. Everything they do is a failure. Every policy they have is incomplete. Every policy they make is racist, xenophobic, sexist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic. When it's a Democrat... Our country is perfect, but we're still racist, of course, because we can't give love to this black president. Everything they do is not their fault. If there's a scandal, it's just politics. If they kill a fucking evil terrorist, it is goddamn them on the trigger. And they're always the best qualified ever. So I'm not surprised by this. I I am just used to it. Every election season, you can guarantee that the Republicans are Nazis or part of the KKK. And everything they ever do is not good enough. That's our media. <clears throat> Even before Obama, when they went full libtard, it was the same way. It's always been that way. KKK, Nazi, this doesn't help anything. Policy's horrible. It's what they do. But it came from uh, Al-Assad Air Base. Wanted to get that in. They did a bunch of uh, rehearsals conducted in Erbil. That's good. Let's get to rest the military corner because, you know, I put it here because it's military. But once again, our media... Always rooting for the other side. A10s to get upgraded 3D surround sound system. Let's read this because we reported it once before, but they didn't explain it. The Air Force Life Cycle Management Center at Hill Air Force Base on Wednesday awarded Term uh, North American Incorporated a $60 million indefinite delivery, indefinite quality contract to retrofit 328 3D audio systems for the close air support aircraft cockpit, according to the Defense Department. The company is a subsidiary of Terma, a Danish defense and aerospace company. Do, uh, it's fucking repeating itself. Let's get down here. Pilots have multiple audio signals coming at them, making it difficult to discern certain radio calls and warnings. The 3D audio system will give pilots the ability to distinguish between signals and discern where they're coming from. Last year, the service said it had planned to award a sole source contract determined to integrate the enhancement. The upgrade would drastically improve the spatial battle space and situational awareness of the A-10C pilots. So, 
God, they're just re-winging them and re-audioing them. We're going to keep that bad boy. I'm happy. Then an interesting, it's a green article, but I agree with it only, well, I'll explain how I agree. Soldiers' bottled water consumption is unsustainable in the next war, Army Report says. The U.S. Army is precipitously close to mission failure when it comes to hydrating soldiers in the kind of contested, arid environments that are likely to go in the next few decades. Nearly two decades of mission in the Middle East and Africa depend on bottled water, local wells, and reverse osmosis water purification units, but that's not always going to be available thanks to saltwater intrusion. Additionally, warmer weather increases hydration requirements. This means that in expeditionary warfare, the Army will need to supply itself with more water. The significant logistical burden will be exacerbated on a future battlefield that requires constant movement due to the ubiquity of adversarial sensors and their deep strike capabilities. Whoa, that's a lot of shit. An Army brigade team depends heavily on bottled water, which it turns relies on costly logistical train. I just skipped all the green shit about the increase in global temperatures, and we're going to all die in 12 years. So I don't even know why they worry about this. There won't be a war, because we'll all be dead. At one Ford operating base in Iraq during 2000s, more than 864,000 bottles of water were consumed each month, with that number doubling during hotter months, according to the study. And that's where we're going to end it. Um, I agree to the extent. Uh, the bottled water is really bad. I mean, just really bad. We We are... We are totally relying on it to drink. I mean, one of the wells in Afghanistan had fucking um, toxic shit. And they started having us drink it, but it wasn't good. They had to end it because people got sick. But somehow, someway, we're going to have to come up with a better way to resupply water because pallets of Dasani, which is my favorite water because of that. That's what I have in my fridge literally doesn't work it takes up so much space so they got to come up with you know a water boy they either got to get bobby boucher or that freaky motherfucker from uh in the army now what the fuck's his name Polly shore and they got to work out a better way to get us water five dumb tactics that actually worked if it's stupid and it works, it isn't stupid, is how the old saying goes. Though it isn't said much anymore, the meaning behind it, it still rings true and has for generations. A tactic that seems so stupid can be useful to the right mind. It can go to an enemy in losing focus, and here are the five. Napoleon at Austerlitz. In the beginning of the 19th century, Napoleon was making his presence known across Europe. The end of the old order was at hand, and the little corporal from Corsica took control of the French and dominated the armies and rulers of Europe. But the social order wasn't the only thing being upended. Napoleon upended the entire doctrine warfare, how battles were fought forever. <clears throat> Nothing is more obvious as when at Austerlitz, where a seemingly rookie mistake was key to victory. As Napoleon fielded the French take on a superior Russian-Austrian force outside of Vienna, things looked bleak, and the French weren't widely expected to lose, and he be forced to flee Austria. <clears throat> With every passing day, Napoleon's enemy became stronger. To goad them into a fight in the place of his choosing, choosing he occupied the heights overlooking the town of Austerlitz, basic military strategy since the days of Sun Tzu. As a combined enemy army approached, they saw the French abandon the heights. The battle was on. Napoleon used the heights as a psych-out. Once the French took the heights in combat, the battle was over for the Russian-Austrian allies. 
gave up the high ground. Israeli independence. When the state of Israel was proclaimed in 48, it was a jubilant day for Jewish people and no one else in the region. The Jews of the new nation of Israel are immediately surrounded on all sides by Arab enemies with superior numbers, technology, money, and basically anything else. What the Israels had going for them was a ton of World War II veterans and a lot of cunning brain power. So even when they had to make bombing runs and single-engine prop planes, they managed to win the day even if they didn't have bombs. As an advancing Arab army approached Tel Aviv, <clears throat> the Jewish forces in the area were at a loss on how to repel them. They had no bombs to support the Israeli troops in the region, and even if they did, they had no bombers to fly them. They needed an equalizer. Someone with combat experience in World War II remembered that seltzer bottles tend to whistle like bombs when dropped from height. When full of seltzer, they also explode with loud bangs. So that's what the IAF used. Bottles of seltzer water. Made them turn back. The army led by zombie. Some people are just so necessary for success, you can't afford to let them go. Unfortunately for Rodrigo Diaz de Vivar and the people of Valencia, one such person was missing when Muslim armies from Morocco were marching on them. They may have gotten wind that Rodrigo was no longer with the army of Valencia, which was true. Rodrigo was no longer among those defenders because Rodrigo was no longer among the living. Since the Christian knight had never lost the battle, his reputation alone was enough to keep invaders at bay. Lucky for Rodrigo, whom you might know better as El Cid, he had a pretty cunning wife, Jamina. Jamina ordered El Cid's dead, decomposing body be fully armored and dressed and lashed to his horse. Jamina then told the army to make a valiant last cavalry charge to break the siege with El Cid at the head. When the Muslims saw the Spaniards coming at them with El Cid at the head of the attack, they immediately broke ranks and fleed. Hmm. Island hopping to fight another day. In 42, things looked really bad for the Allied Navy force. The Pearl Harbor, blah, 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 blah. Let's get to the point. After the Japanese Empire captured the Dutch East Indies, the Navy was limping pretty badly. Hong Kong, Malaya, Burma, and more had fallen to the mighty Japanese initiative. As Allied ships were ordered to retreat to Austria, one was somehow left behind. That was HNLMS Abraham Sinjin, a Dutch minesweeper which was separated after the attacks on the East Indies. Armed with one three-inch gun and two 20-millimeter cannons, the minesweeper was no match for any of the Japanese warships floating around the island. In order to stay undetected, the Dutch covered the ship in foliage and painted the hull the color of rocks. They moored the ship near island by day and moved only by night, and it worked. She not only made it to Australia, she survived the war. And then finally, Mongols think differently. For much of the Western world in the Middle Ages, a retreat was not a good thing. If a cavalry force appeared routed, it might lead to the infantry break ranks and running. Even the most orderly retreats were considered an option only at the last possible moment. That was not how the Mongols under Genghis Khan thought of a retreat. A retreat was a tactic to be used like any other tactic. There are many examples of the use of feigned retreat in the history of Mongol contest. The reason for this is because it worked. It worked really well. Troops from China to Poland would be locked in a life-or-death struggle against the Mongol hordes when suddenly the Mongols would turn tail and run, their spirit to fight seemingly broken. As a chorus of cheers went up from the exhausted defender, they would inevitably give chase, and it was a baited attack. That's what we call it today, and it does work. Then we got this one, which I call bullshit. Don't blame MREs for your gastrointestinal discomfort. Army scientists say. Right there. Army scientists. You're full of fucking shit. Consuming nothing but MREs for three weeks may not be the most appetizing thing to do, but a study by army scientists has found that it doesn't harm your gut health. 
That may come as a surprise to anyone whose stomach has rumbled after eating the highly processed military rations for just one day, let alone 21. How about 80? 80 days. And then we just got T-Rats. I only ate two a day. Really one and a half. Uh, they say that 21 is the maximum time Army says MRA should be sole source of sustenance for soldiers unless you're in Afghanistan and we're trucking in bottled water. <laughs> I'm sorry, flying in bottled water. <clears throat> it's not MREs underlying a lot of anecdotal reports of gastrointestinal discomfort, says Dr. J. Phillips Carl, a scientist at research at NADAC. Service members usually eat MREs when they're training or on a mission in harsh terrain under stress and possible overseas, where hygiene might be at a high standard. Carl said in a phone interview, they may also be dehydrated. The study set out to determine if the rations and environment that cause the digestive issues service members often associate with MREs. 64 people, mostly men, responded to the Army 2015 call for volunteers to eat only MREs. Four dropped out for reasons including in gastrointestinal distress and not sticking to the study protocol. Participants were divided in two groups, one which ate their usual diet while the other ate nothing but MREs for three weeks. The MRE group could have water and up to three cups of black coffee a day in addition to the ration, but that was it. The volunteers kept logs while dietitians monitored their weight and adjusted food intake. At the gain or lost weight, researchers collected blood, urine, and stool samples from the volunteers several times during the study and analyzed the samples to determine if MREs were impacting health by causing changes to gut, microbacterial, fungi, and viruses that live in the intestines. Research suggested gut mi- mi- microbiota influenced our moods, digestion, immune system, Carl said. Even a small change can alter how nutrients are absorbed or inflame the intestinal lining, leading to stomach pain and even chronic disease. But Carl and his team of researchers found almost no difference in gut chemistry between those who only ate MREs and who didn't. Those who ate just rations did have one fewer bowel movement per week. Huh. That I call... Bullshit. There are ones that make you shit, and there's one that make you don't. So you just got to make sure you eat a don't in the morning and a yes in the evening, and the next morning you'll take a dump. You'll be fine. So let's go on to our college crazy. Were you trying to get crazy with this scene? Don't you know I'm local? Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. Hi, I'm Edward and Rhett with Campus Reform. Today we're at George Washington University asking students about Hillary Clinton. With the former Democratic nominee being in the news recently over her spat with Tulsi Gabbard, we wanted to find out, would students vote for her again? So Hillary Clinton's been in the news recently. Have you noticed? I've not noticed, no. I've not. So Hillary Clinton was in the news over the weekend. Did you happen to see any of that? Uh, No, I did not. So Hillary Clinton was in the news over the weekend. Did you happen to see anything about that? I did not. No, I did not. I was kind of MIA over the weekend. (laughs) So Hillary Clinton's been in the news recently. Have you noticed? I have, yes. What have you heard? 
I have heard that she was uh, out saying Tulsi Gabbard was actively advocating for something about Russia. Well, I kind of heard that she's interested in running again. She called Tulsi Gabbard a Russian asset. She's been in the news because she's attacking one of the candidates running on the Democratic side. Tulsi Gabbard called her a Russian asset. Hillary's also been in the news over the last few days because she's come out with a book. She's out with a new book, doing a book tour, radio, TV, talking about herself, talking about current events. People are starting to wonder, is she going to jump in the Democratic race? People are wondering... Is Hillary trying to run again? And so my question to you is, if Hillary gets in the race, would you vote for her? No. <laughs> Come on, no. So if Hillary Clinton jumped into the 2020 race, would you vote for her? I would not, no. Would you vote for Hillary Clinton? No. If she jumped in, would you vote for her? No. If Hillary jumped into the race on the Democratic side, would you vote for her? Uh, probably not. I would not vote for Hillary Clinton in 2020 for the same reason that I did not vote for her in 2016. I'm anti-interventionalist. Would you vote for her? I would not, no. Hillary jumps into the 2020 Democratic primary. Would you vote for her? Uh, no. You can probably see by my hat I'm a Bernie Sanders supporter. Probably not. I don't know. Probably not. Why not? Uh, I feel like I'd be afraid I'd be wasting my vote. I don't think she has much of a chance. You kind of had her shot in 2016, and I'm kind of tired of hearing about her. It almost sounds like she's just kind of complaining because she lost to, you know, somebody else i don't know in the last election i would have voted for her but in this upcoming election i think there's a lot more candidates democratic candidates that um are better options for our nation and i think um i would vote for them over hillary clinton i think that she has a tendency to kind of put a negative spin on everything and i don't think that that's what the country needs right now so no i don't think that she's a viable candidate for the Democratic Party. If the Democrats want to beat Trump, I don't think that it would be wise for her to run, and I don't think it would be wise for Democrats to vote for her. I definitely would support her. I think, honestly, it's not necessarily about her. It's more so about her husband. I love when the Clintons were in office. You sure you want Bill running around the White House again? I think her time is coming past, and there's other people that are more qualified, I think, now. Um, especially since she's already lost two presidential campaigns in a row. There's better candidates out now. So I don't think she'd be a good candidate to be a president. And I think, you know, her just being the first woman running, I would support her because I think it's time for, like, a woman's president. Like, I'm so onto that, and it's just, it's hip. It's something new. It's something fresh. I'm open to voting for a Democrat, just not Hillary Clinton. The country's divided, and that's the number one problem, at least from yeah. my point of view. So... The f any politician who is going to put others down instead of talking about policies that they can enforce, I wouldn't vote for them. What do you think that says how she views the Democratic Party, that maybe she'd be willing to even put the next election at risk for her own self-interest? What do you think that says about her? I think she's looking for a way to, I guess, remain relevant as a politician. I think it's something that she desperately wants. I think it says that she sees the party and the DNC as her playground, which is how she's treated it traditionally, as something that is malleable only to her. She's tried hard enough, and I think there's something keeping her from winning this, winning the presidential election. And I'm not sure what it is, but I think there's something holding her back. I think the second time's the charm, to be honest. You know, everyone makes mistakes. No one gets it the first time. Let's just give her another try and see what she does. I think that she had her time. She was... Uh she ran. She didn't win uh, back then. I don't think that she'd be a good candidate if she ran again. I think we had better candidates as Democrats who would run. And so if you could tell Hillary Clinton the best way you could help Democrats in 2020, it would be to do what? 
don't run. Stay out of the race if you want to put put your you know your party over your own self interest um, of running. So if there was one thing she could do that would help the party, it would be to do what? Not run. She's not really politically relevant anymore. I would say that it's probably best for her to stick on the sidelines. Um, Maybe someone has a better chance of beating Trump than she does, and she doesn't care. She's just she may do it again. What do you yeah. think that says about her personally? That she really wants to be president uh, and kind of doesn't care whether or not uh, the Democratic candidate actually will win or has the ability to win. Um, yeah, it's just all about personal gain, I think. She's had her chance. She's ran twice down the front. She's ran twice now, lost in the primaries once, lost in a general. Like, her time's done. I don't see why she would run or why anyone would would vote for her at this point. Just associating with her in general as a party is probably going to be a bit toxic for our brand. Like, Trump's going to be like, oh my god, crooked Hillary's getting back into the race. See, these Democrats can't let go of her. When you want something bad enough, you, you sort of, like, convince yourself of it, that you're the right person for it. I think she's sort of just blinded by her own, like, ambition. Part of the reason she lost was because people just stayed home. They don't want to vote for her. Like, go home. Retire. <laughs> Those are students by uh, Campus Reform <clears throat> did interviews, and they're begging Hillary not to run. What does that say? I love it. Harvard Group encourages students' paper to ignore journalism ethics in stories involving ICE. Harvard University College Democrat Student Group, a pro-illegal alien organization, and several other parties are demanding that the student paper ignore standard journalism practices and stop reaching out to ICE to comment. Act on a Dream, the pro-illegal alien group, is a student group that advocates for the rights of all immigrants on campus, regardless of status. The group started the petition after holding a September rally for the abolition of ICE, and after the Harvard Crimson, the school newspaper, reached out to ICE for comment. We are extremely disappointed in culturally insensitivity displayed by the Crimson's policy to reach out to ICE, a government agency with a long history of surveilling and retaliating against those who speak out against them. In this political climate, a request for comment is virtually the same as tipping them off, regardless of how they are contacted. We strongly condemn the decision to uphold a policy that blatantly endangers undocumented students at our campus. Responsible journalism includes being conscious about the impact caused by their actions as a news organization. And I only cover that because that is our media. <laughs> So I don't know what we're talking about ethics here. We don't have ethics. Right now, they're rolling out anything. Anybody who's doing an interview for Trump impeachment, which I'm really not covering today, including some military person, oh, they doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. It is the gospel. And then when we get into our hate section today, oh, yeah, they went after the red state female who reported on Katie Hill. They went after her. Journalists did. So we don't have ethics in journalism. You may teach it. It might be part of the course. But it should just be rewritten as your sole objective is to support and defend not the First Amendment, the Democratic Party. That's what they're defending. SJP demands mandatory Islamophobia training. More Palestinian faculty threatened to push Chancellor to resign. Here's their demands. We demand the immediate release of new mass mail with the following points included. 
draw a clear distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism, explicitly state the student presentation contained no anti-Semitic contact, denounced conflation of swastikas and other Nazi symbols with Palestinian-related content, apologized university housing and multicultural advocates for accusations of anti-Semitism leveled at both offices and their staff, recognize and demonstrate support for Palestinian students on campus. We demand the assurance that at least one member of SJP is able to serve on the future mass Male Review Committee. We demand to start the process for the establishment of Middle East North Africa MENA Cultural House with SJP members represented on the Planning Committee. We demand that all housing para-professionals in addition to anti-Semitism training include Islamophobia, anti-blackness, queerphobia, and others. And of course, this is student justice in Palestine. Concerns were raised about a recent rep presentation with anti-Semitic content at a staff development program by housing student worker, read the email from UIUC Chancellor Robert Jones. <clears throat> After describing this in a swastika alleged found on campus building, the Chancellor announced that full-time housing staff, multicultural advocates, and resident advisors would be required to complete an anti-Semitism training. In response, SJP put that out and basically told them, fuck you, fuck your mother, fuck Every day. Failure to comply with the demands above will result in students' demand for the resignation of Chancellor Robert Jones. They then put on Facebook after days of meeting with the Chancellor, SJP UIUC is responding with these demands. The University of Illinois has 48 hours to respond before we take immediate action. <clears throat> they're fucking terrorists. I'm telling you, they're just terrorists. They're able to do whatever they want under the name of social justice. Rich Lowry. The NYU paper finally explained why it pulled an ad at the last minute with the talk of NYU tonight about my new book. Just seeing the word nationalism would have marginalized people of color on our campus. Oh my God. Last week, conservative pundit Rich Lowry purchased a full-page advertisement to be printed on the back page of WSN's Monday, October 21st issue. The ad promoted his Thursday talk at Silver Center, an event sponsored by the College Republicans and NYU AEI Council, as well as the most recent book. A prominent letter across the top, the ad read, Nationalism is a good thing. The Sunday night, during our weekly print production of the paper, I decided to pull the ad from an issue. The ad pro-nationalist message does not align with the values of our paper, and after much thought, it was my decision to cancel it. <clears throat> the world word nationalism, as it exists today in the political lexicon, connotates xenophobia and white supremacy. And printing it in large letters on the back of our paper would have marginalized people of color on our campus and our staff. I prioritize the sensibilities and trust of our audience over the ad revenue, and I stand by my decision. So loving your country because you've made it racist. Not the people saying it. Republicans aren't saying it. They want all white people. They're saying, hey, what's wrong with being proud of America? And you flipped it to be racist so you can scare people into voting for you. Now that word is that. Hmm. Interesting. 
Our next one, I'm going to play a skit I did for U.S. Calvary. We got hammered for this, by the way. The social justice warriors attacked the shit out of us and got taken down. And I think this is like the only copy, copy ever. But the last words I say are a real thing now. As commander of fashion for the North American Strategic Command in Papua New Guinea, I oversee all the fashion decisions for the military. We've looked at lots of uniforms, and not all of them have worked. For instance, pleats, while very stylish, are not very tactical. And we've also looked at sequins, which are very nice, but they give your position away. This new TRU Extreme uniform is amazing. The Extreme Molly webbing allows for unlimited accessories, and I love accessorizing. The possibilities are endless. After a few more weeks of testing, I hope all my little soldiers in Afghanistan will be wearing this new uniform. Jazz hands. Jazz hands. Yeah. British University decides clapping isn't inclusive enough. A student newspaper at Oxford University in the United Kingdom is reporting that school council will encourage the use of jazz hands, the British sign language symbol for applause, rather than clapping because the traditional applause could cause anxiety. No, I didn't make that up. That, that's a real thing. According to Oxford student, the Oxford Student Council approved a motion mandating the officers to encourage the use of jazz hands rather than clapping. Oxford University Student Council Vice President of Welfare and Equal Opportunity, Roizen McCallion. They're just, see, they hate the world because their name is Roizen. What kind of fucking name is that? Reportedly introduced the motion, which passed Tuesday. The phrase jazz hands refers to when one moves their hands quickly back and forth in front of them. The Daily Mail quoted one Oxford student as saying, Oxford University Student Union is always seeking to be more accommodating for students, especially those with accessibility issues. However, the student added, but this idea will not work and is completely ludicrous. Pierce Morgan said, Oxford... Your ban on clapping to stop students with anxiety being triggered and the use of silent jazz hands. Instead, performing jazz hands is racist. Your new rule excludes blind people, so we'll make them feel marginalized. Grow a pair, you imbeciles. When is Pierce Morgan a voice of reason? That's how crazy you got your people become. Oxford is the second British university in many years to ban or discourage the use of clapping. I think we covered the other one a year ago. In 2018, the University of Manchester approved a similar motion. While campus reform is not aware of any American universities that approve such rules, many U.S. colleges and universities do encourage snaps rather than clapping for the same reason that Oxford and Manchester encourage Jan hands. Instead of putting hands together to celebrate something, students are now being encouraged to pull them apart, throw them in the air, and do what's called jazz hands when celebrating shake their hands in the air. Oxford is the only institute of higher learning to silence claps. The University Ambassador passed the same rule last year. The Telegraph reported Manchester added the suggestion to the inclusion training for new students. The change is to help calm those who have anxiety may be triggered by loud noises of clapping. And if clapping... Blows you the fuck up? How would you have made it through the Blitz? How? I don't know. 
You definitely wouldn't make it through this. This is Oakland. It's a school council and it's parents and cops fighting and it ends our school and goes into gay shit. Demands dangerous Christians give up their faith for LGBTQEIEIO. Kudos up us for trying to find some common ground between the gay community and Christians. And by finding common ground, we mean adopting a scorched earth, take no prisoner tactic. HuffPo article, it's a little educational piece titled Christians. Here's how to affirm your queer friends. Is uncompromising list of demands for traditional Christians who... whether they're intended to or not, have caused great harm to the fragile LGBTQ psyches through the history. They come for their revenge, and it's not just about treating your gay neighbor civilly. You will accommodate his, her, their, it, every wish, or consider yourself guilty of violence. Essentially, Sunday school repression has destroyed the well-being of many queer kid and the years of confusing but following Sister Mary aversions to hosting lesbian sex education classes means a reckoning is on the horizon. Horizon. Author Hannah Brashers employs the best example how Christians should not treat gay people and then insists that this is what people of faith do. Furthermore, she refuses the counterpoint that actual Christians aren't like, <coughs> aren't like because that would just be inconvenient, wouldn't it? She begins, I grew up in a tiny fundamentalist church where I was told every Sunday how evil homosexuals were. She adds, the pastor's voice would shake with anger as he compared gay people to pedophiles. I knew I was gay, but any time I had thought about women, I instantly suppressed them. Because of such normal, everyday Christian behavior, when Brashers began dating women, I had panic attacks and nausea so severe that I threw up a few times a week. I share my story because I want people to know how damaging the religion can be, and I want people like myself to feel less alone. What gives? Even old school conservatives know that God hates fag gang is tiny fringe. Nope, can't go there. Brashers can't stand people who insist that that's not what real Christianity 
is calling the notion manipulative a form of gaslighting and saying that it silences the stories of queer people. Most importantly, let me tell you up front, folks, I went to school, I went to Sunday school, summer camp Sunday school, until I was 10 in every Sunday church. Nobody talked about gays. I never heard that. I never even heard the verse out of the Bible, you shall not lie, lie with a man. That was something that never was talked about. There was no conversion therapy. So what's the alternative? Take a blame for overzealous wackos and have the gospel further forced out the public square? Precisely. Brasher's opinion represents the current state of LGBTQ politics, which is a bit more aggressive than the movement's older trope of live and let live. After calling Christians dangerous to the LGBT community, Brasher lists her demands for queer-affirming Christians, which requires total capitulation to the LGBTQ lobby. She writes, firstly, affirming 100% of our identities is crucial, so many of us are used to the homophobic Christians who use the love the sinner, hate the sin trope, yet we can't even disagree in private anymore. Transgender four-year-olds, for example, are now a beautiful reality. Secondly, she writes, recognizing the pain that Christians have inflicted on queer communities is important, and a real apology can go a long way. Yes, we must admit that the Bible and church teachings have have been in error and amend them. What else? Thirdly, Brasher adds, it's also crucial for queer affirming Christians to hold other Christians accountable. This is what allyship looks like, she claims. Always remember to reveal the full identity of non-queer affirming heretics to the Bureau. Satire aside, this type of rhetoric should be a wake-up call for moderate conservatives who think LGBTQers just want to coexist. They need to alter or eradicate groups that don't think like them. They don't want to coexist. They just don't. I mean, I'm about to play the soundbite that I didn't play last time because the Texas governor gives an update and the the judge is now saying that the seven-year-old, the father, can have something to do with the transition. This is what they're doing to kids. You're a boy, right? No. I'm a girl. Who told you you were a girl? Mommy. When did she tell you you were a girl? I love girls. Oh, I see. So mommy told you you were a girl? Uh-huh. Um, any, does mommy um, do anything else like with a girl with you? Mm-hmm. Like what? Like what, what does she do? She do comes in front of me. She puts dresses on you? Oh, wow. And what else does she do? She buys my hatbands. Uh-huh. And she, and, <clears throat> and she can... Me hair clips. Oh, hair clips? Okay. Mm-hmm. What else? Some microphones. What else? Like a skeleton. Does she do anything with your fingers? Yeah. What? She paints my nails. So that, why does she do that? Because I love my nail polish. Oh. So mommy puts you in a dress and puts nail polish on you? Mm-hmm. And And what does mommy tell you? She tells me I'm a girl. Oh, okay. Do you think you're a girl? Uh-huh. You do? Is that why you wear this, so that you can have long hair? Mm-hmm. Okay. He was three years old when that was filmed. That's the mother. That's what LGBTQers are doing to kids. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're taking kids... 
and making him gay so gay is more rampant. Rand Paul, we don't let kids drink alcohol at 21. People want to move smoking age 21, but will allow a seven-year-old to have his life and body altered to this? This is child abuse, and the state should side with the father. It's true. Charlotte Clymer, in case it wasn't clear, anti-trans conservatives don't give a damn about this child. This little girl is being exploited as a vehicle of outrage by right-wing pundits, all too happy to make this about their hang-up with the actual science of sex and gender. Protect James Younger. Oh, really? This is the gay community making this another gay kid. People responded, the kid is being exploited, all right, but it's not by the right-wing pundits. Charlotte may be the most deliberately ignorant, insufferable, misguided, yet self-righteous person on this toxic muck site. Because if you are against child abuse, you're anti-trans conservative. I know which side of the argument I'm on. It's just fucking un-goddamn believable. But it's not stop. It's not stopping. What's a nine-year-old drag queen to do? He's too young to host drag queen story time in local libraries, so left to do shows and clubs, and apparently the demand is great. We've done several posts of the young drag queens, including Canada's Leticia, but now there's a featured documentary following the lives of four nine-year-old drag queens, and the distributors are expecting a wide release next year after an October premiere in New York. Queerity talked to the director Megan Wenberg, who followed the four prepubescent drag queens around and captured their stories on film. The trolls have lost their mind over drag kids with all the child abuse bullshit. Adding, we discussed gender identity a bit. It was led by the kids, something they brought up. In Jason's case, he now comes out as gay. Stefan is gender fluid. He hasn't decided if he likes boys or likes girls or likes both, but he says there are days he feels like a boy and days he feels like a girl. He balances accordingly. Even the scene where he's packing a suitcase to go to Montreal, he was a boy that day and he wanted none of the drag stuff. He wasn't packing any dresses or anything like that. It was like, I'm a boy. It was all onesies and tracksuits. Bracken isn't sure. Nemesis says his pronoun hasn't been invented yet, which is awesome. It's night that the parents love it, and in some cases encourage it, because a lot of adults are not on board. Clarity. Megan Weinberg explores when kids do drag and the homophobia that follows in drag kids. Somebody responded, Homophobia? You think we're afraid of the kids? We are afraid for the kids, you sicko. When pageant moms dress their little girls up in heavy makeup and sexualized costumes, it's abuse. When they do the same for little boys, it's progress. We live in an upside-down world. This is child abuse, and you will not shame us away from standing up to protect these kids, Queerity. Involving children is where I draw the line. I have It has nothing to do with homophobia, because I would also have a problem with kids doing non-drag burlesque shows. When prepubescent kids do pageant... And I say it's exploitation, which is phobia, which phobia is that? It isn't homophobia to think that a child should look like a child. <clears throat> I would object if a little girl was dolled up like that. The point is that children are being sexualized and it's wrong. Are you sure this is the take you want to go with? I don't believe that homosexuals are okay with exploiting children. All children need to be protected, even ones who think they may be the opposite sex. Yes, all. This is not homophobia. It's not. It's child abuse. But this is where they're taking it. And the media ignores it or promotes it on GMA with Leticia looking fierce. 
I mean, what the fuck, Chuck? But they, they, it's just like what we saw with everything they attack. So now you have stuff like this. Biologically male NCAA runner named Conference Female Athlete of the Week. June Eastwood, a male who identifies as a transgender woman. The cross-country female athlete of the week, Junice, would finish second in the field of 204 runners at the Santa Clara Bronca Invitational. It's a dude with long hair. It's a dude with long hair. I'm just a long hair. And it was accompanied with this audio of a woman sidelined because of a tranny male. Connecticut junior Selena Soul won't be competing in the 55-meter dash. She was edged out of the top six spots in part by two transgender runners. Yes, I have. I have been labeled as transphobic and I have been labeled as a sore loser and that I should just try harder and train faster. And I do that. But there's no way I can be physically competitive with someone who is a male. At the Connecticut State Open meet in, in the indoor season, I was participating in the 55-meter race. You had to qualify from your class meet in. And I qualified in eighth place. And in the preliminary round, I ran close to my personal best, only a hundredth of a second off of my best. And I came in eighth place. and the and top seven qualify for the final, and the top six advance to the New England regional meet. And because there were two transgender athletes, that bumped me down to eighth place. And if they weren't there, then I would have been the sixth girl. I would have been ensured a spot in the finals, and I could have gained a higher placement and qualified for the New England meet. It's extremely intimidating and frustrating being forced to compete against someone who's biologically a male. It's scientifically proven that they are bigger and stronger than women as they have more muscle mass and they have bigger organs. And it's just not a fair contest having a woman compete against a man because no matter how hard she tries and how much work she puts in in practice, the male will always beat her. When we are all at the start line, we all know that these two athletes are going to win. And it should be that the girls are fighting for first and second place versus fighting for third and fourth place. Because in a given race, us girls, we will switch on and off with winning. It's not always the same girl each time, but when these two athletes participate, it is always one of them who is winning the race. This can greatly impact my future with college scholarships because on the results pages from the meets, there's no identification that these two athletes are transgender. They're either listed in under the boys' races or the girls' races. And unless the college coach would go and type into Google uh, this, these athletes' names or have watched one of the TV show segments on this, they have, would have no idea that these athletes are transgender, but they're going to see that their times are way higher than any other girl in the field, and they're going to want to recruit or try to recruit those two athletes. I've gotten attacked by some of the media. I don't pay too much attention to it because I know that majority of the stuff will be negative, but I've had people reach out to me on social media as well as athletes from other schools, and they've thanked me for my speaking out. And right now, currently, in Connecticut, I am the only girl who is speaking out. Everyone else is too afraid. And for me, it's hard speaking out. It's not always easy. But I know that this isn't right, and I'm going to do whatever I possibly can to bring back fairness to my sport.
That's what's happening in this LGBTQ mafia pushing people to do everything that they don't want to do just to fucking not be abused by boycotts and protests. Women are being affected. And other than a few feminists, not a lot are sounding off on these feminazis. And they should be. Because all that's getting hurt is women. That's who's getting hurt. It's main line now. CBS News parrots idea that people who menstruate aren't always female. This is a major news that you expect CNN and MSNBC. You don't expect, expect over-air news. Talk about putting men in menstruation. On Tuesday, it was announced that feminine hygiene product always, blah, 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 blah. CBS News reported the announcement follows pleas from LGBTQ activists to make the labeling more inclusive of transgenders and non-binary customers. Because apparently, having feminine products coded as feminine is offensive and exclusionary. According to CBS News, LGBTQ activists and allies have been publicly acting Procter Gamble to redesign the packaging to be more gender neutral. They argue that using the female symbols is exclusive because not all women menstruate and not all people menstruate identifies women okay but all who menstruate have an xx chromosome that would make them biologically female is the same nonsense left the liberal media editing the language blah 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 goes on and we covered it but it wasn't on the mainstream media promoting it and they did then to make it worse cbs ran this garbage it's estimated that one in five Americans have been involved in a consensually non-monogamous relationship at some point in their life. They pushed throuples. We both, I think, believe that monogamy is something that we take with like a grain of salt. I have a girlfriend. Bridget has a boyfriend. Yeah, it is a triad monogamous relationship, which is uh, sounds kind of weird. I am shocked at how common consensual non-monogamy is now. It's not just about sleeping with each other's husbands, you know. Our lives are meshed together. A lot of people think that, you know, when you're three people in a relationship, you're dividing attention. But we see it as we're multiplying the attention. Many people are trying to create family in different kinds of ways, and I think a lot of people see that as dangerous. My ex-husband is explicitly concerned. I think he's in that mindset. This is not normal. This is not how it's supposed to be. Giving somebody an out may give them an excuse to have a permanent out. We're not here to just wreck the world and burn it down. Anything the left comes up with, the media will parrot. In some cases, as we've talked about on the show, the media will push it, and then the DNC will talk about it. It's a concerted effort to take everything normal and shit can it. So now, basically fucking the whole world is good. Being in a regular relationship, bad. Having children, bad. Aborting kids, good. I mean, what the fuck? <clears throat> Sorry, I'm so buggery today. I'm getting a cold, so the snorting's probably gross, but I, I'm just trying to breathe. You definitely believe who Glamour magazine picked as Woman of the Year. For the second time in less than a month, the magazine has declared that only liberal women make a difference. Glamour announced the 2019 Woman of the Year, and surprise, no conservatives are included. Some of the winners include far-left environmental activist Greta Thunberg, anti-Trump soccer star Megan I'm-a-fucking-bitch Rapone, and apocalypse 
the handmaid, Margaret Atwood, who gets it every year. It's like a recurring thing for fucking handmaids. How about female leaders from former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haler? Nope. United States Air Force combat pilot, Violet Martha McSally? Nope. Instead, Thunberg entry is titled The Revolutionary. The Texas online version reads, 16-year-old climate activist Greta Thunberg is on a mission to save the planet, but she can't do it alone, not to mention her claim that eating meat is stealing her generation's future or her hypocritical fight flight shaming. In an online-only CBS This Morning segment, Glamour Editor-in-Chief Samantha Berry hailed Thunberg as a star, and I'm not reading anymore, and it just goes on and on and on and on. Massachusetts damn bill would make it illegal to call someone a bitch. Yeah. Repeat offenders could fake six months in prison. We got an opioid problem. We have all these stuff the media parrots all the time. But saying bitch would be a problem. A Massachusetts Democrat is pushing a bill that would make it a crime to maliciously call someone a bitch within the Commonwealth. Foul-mouthed individual are found guilty under bill introduced by Democratic Representative Daniel J. I am a social justice warrior hunt, a dude, would face a $150 maximum fine for the first offense, while repeat offenders could face up to six months in prison and a 200 fine, or both. If an acted bitch would be the only word in the English language received such special consideration in Massachusetts, Hunt introduced an act regarding the use of offensive words in May. Proposed law would specify that the use of word bitch satisfies the offensive and disorderly act or language. A person who used the word bitch directed at another person to cost, annoy, degrade, or demean that other person shall be considered to be disorderly person. A violation of this subsection may be reported by the person to whom the offense language is directed at or red flag to somebody else. Hunt told the Boston Herald that he filed the bill after being asked to do so by a constituent. Anytime a constituent approaches me, I go with it as long as it's liberal fucking nonsense. Vox, written by somebody who's getting passed over for promotions... Meritocracy produces radically radical inequity, stifles social mobility, and makes everyone, including its apparent winners, miserable. Should we get rid of it? Yeah. Author Daniel Markovitz explained in an interview with Vox Ezra Klein. 50, 60, 70 years ago, you could tell how poor somebody was by how hard they worked. Today, the relationship has been completely reversed. Elites work for a living. They work harder than they used to. They work harder in terms of brute hours than the middle class on average, and they get most of the income by working. The rich today are no longer an indolent leisure class, but the Markovitz calls a subordinate working class. They work harder, longer, and perform more high-skilled work than ever before. As a result, Markovitz calculates that three-quarters of elite income now originates from labor rather than inherited capital. Breaking. Millennial DC blogger assumes everyone is miserable like him. Written by a guy regularly passed up for promotion by people who work harder and are smarter than him. And this is their big push. You should get it for free. You should not have to work for what you get. Working's hard. I just want to play Xbox and smoke pot. Can you pay me for that? God. Griswold. A pair of Indian-American boys attacked African-American girls in New Jersey. According to New York Times op-ed, that was enacting American whiteness proves that whiteness evolves and race is not a matter of blood or color of our skin. A racist, this is actually the heading. A racist attack shows how whiteness evolves. 
An assault in a New Jersey high school football game had an unexpected cast of characters. So, basically, people of color beat each other up. I'm not even reading it. It's, I got a whole bunch of shit. I'm, I'm just not doing it. This is how they're taking racist now. You're... We're, white people are racist if black people beat each other up. That's the new stupid. That's fucking the New York Times. Get the fuck out of here. People wrote back, welcome to the club, Indian dudes. We're doing pumpkins and flannel right now and drinking fucking pumpkin spice. Non-white people attacking non-white people is enacting whiteness? I guess that means Indian community has become so successful that they inappropriate... Action just shows they're even evil white supremacists, right? Yeah, I get so. The Atlantic tiki bars burst onto the American scene at the end of Prohibition. They nearly vanished in the 70s and 80s. Now they're back with a vengeance. But are they just one more instance of cultural appropriation? Sarah Miller Davenport, the author of Gateway State, Hawaii and the Cultural Transformation of American Empire, describes how Polynesian-style bars and restaurants allowed mid-century middle-class white Americans to feel cosmopolitan and adventurous, in part by playing a racist stereotypes of Polynesian sexuality. These stereotypes are part of the reason Kawala Kora, the Hawaiian and Pacific American curator at the Smithsonian Asian Pacific American Center, says tiki bars make him a native Hawaiian uncomfortable. So that's the new thing. That's why on my dashboard, boys and girls, I have a 50s themed white fucking hula girl. I got rid of a dark skin hula girl on purpose. And I'm going to tell you right now, I see people look at it. People, these SJWs are out there. Two gay people walked past me the other day and I, they were staring at it. But then they noticed the hair was yellow when they looked away. Because they couldn't say anything. They wanted to, but they couldn't. And more on that about guns in a bit. I'm going to close this section with guns because my shirt had somebody triggered this weekend. Noah Garfunkel. This is how stupid the left has happened. They changed the ABC song to clarify the LMNOP part, and it is life-ruining. Was LMNOP actually a problem? Never heard a word about it. This is a living nightmare, and this is a thing now. A, B, C, D, E, F, G... H-I-J-K-L-M-N-O-P-Q-R-S-T-U-V-W-X-Y-Z I researched to try to find why this was done, but I couldn't find it. But this is, this is how far liberals will go, man. They'll change the ABC song. Because usually LMNOP. But now they're not saying that. And I'm sure it's for some reason that people can't say that. Or it's cultural appropriation of letters. I mean, who the fuck knows? But how... This is what we talk about. They ruin everything. They spend all day bitching about life in general. And they have to look for things to get outraged. Some liberal teacher got outraged about this. And they changed it. Because that's what liberals do. 
We told you last month about fake news Halloween costumes that was spotted at Walmart. Frankly, we're a little bit surprised the retail giant hasn't yet been pressured to remove the tribute to modern-day journalism from the rack. But according to this tweet from BuzzFeed editor Ben Smith, the costume remains on store shelves. Fake news costume in the Halloween section at Walmart. You might recall when a museum sold fake news shirts and merchandise, but journos and others had such a fit they were pulled from the shelves. Walmart might be about to get some strong... Worded letters as well. And there it is. A big old shirt. Followed by at least 50 journalist blue checks. Boo, thumbs down. Oh my God, why are they selling that? Well, just watch CNN and you'll see why. Washington Post hypes rally against nickname of Washington Redskins. That's still a thing. 5,000 people, most of them trucked in. They're not there. Ahead of the Washington NFL team's visit to Minnesota, I spoke on the House floor today about the damage the NFL continues to inflict by condoning a racist name and mascot. Tomorrow, I'll join tribal leaders, elected officials, and other Minnesotians to call for the change of the mascot, Representative Betty McCallum. You saw it right there. It's not even people from Washington. Somebody said in the article, the majority of Native Americans still aren't offended by the name of the Washington Redskins. The finding is from a recent survey, and as you probably remember, even if you tried to forget, falls in line with Washville found three years ago. It's never changed, and 12 years before. They really don't give a fuck. These are the people that just spend their whole life being outraged about something. Study attacks Peterson, Shapiro, Rubin as fringe political creators. Yet another social media study, this time from Penn State University, characterized a group of YouTube creators as a threat. The study, a supply and demand framework for YouTube politics, offers a new way to look at the alternative media found on YouTube by analyzing the alternative influence network set out in a study, previous study by Data and Society Rebecca Lewis. The study came to a radical new conclusion. Fringe political content creators such as Jordan Peterson, podcast host Joe Rogan, Rubin Reports host Dave Rubin, comedian Steven Crowder, Daily Wire Ben Shapiro, Prager Year founder Dennis Prager, are creating content that offer validation to audience that sympathize with white nationalism. The fringe ideologies available on YouTube offer validation to this audience frustration and disaffection, bundled with the seemingly coherent worldview that explains everything about contemporary politics, writes Kevin Munger and Joseph Phillips. Content creators in this network pride themselves on authentic interactions, which act as a subversive vector for political agenda. Let me just distill it down. Right Wing people have no place on the internet. It's always been that way. I, I, I wax poetic about my first political interlude into the dark web as WSMV bitch box that turned into WSMV chat room, which went to politics online, U.S. politics online. I was part of that and paid for it, donated $50 a year. To run the site. And it was always the same. That's how they talked. Why are you here? You don't belong here. You're a conservative. Shut your fucking mouth. Teen Vogue survey. Politics of 20 use. Not one conservative. They were all 16 to 24. They did a whole interviews. The whole nine yards. None of it. Was from a conservative thought point. Here's some of the stuff that came from it. Uh, always very careful to observe all important preferred pronouns. 
Ellie Anderson, 16, a Democrat. Amber, Pennsylvania. They even have their she, her, hers preferred pronouns. My entire life I knew that I was a Democrat. My parents have always been far left and Democrat. They instilled their belief on my siblings and me. The Democratic Party ideal matchup with me, so I've always been a Democrat. The 2016 election was an event that really secured my beliefs. My bubble was popping, and it was hard to come to terms with that. Most Democrats could understand my beliefs. Boom. I love that because that is basically what I talk about on the show all the time. That is what Democrats do. They indoctrinate. I mean, I love my daughter, but she is indoctrinating my boys. Because that's how Democrats act. Progressives indoctrinate. Conservatives expose. I mean, we could have an argument all day, but my daughter could not disagree that during her lifetime, I spoke of my beliefs. I didn't demand her to do it. She was exposed to it. But she could go be whoever the fuck she wanted. That's not how Democrats play. Um, Batya Krasinski, progressive. I found that my parents are great resources that direct me in the right direction for information. While our stances align with each other, I have worked to never just blindly agree with everything they think. I found that in the liberal echo chamber of a city, everyone sort of agrees. There's not much debate or argument because we're all on the same page. Wow. Out of the mouth of babes. Linnea Hirsch from Los Angeles. Not reading it. I'm a Marxist. And anarchism. Soren Hines between anarchism and democratic socialists. Emily Igani, 19, a leftist from North Carolina. I'm an anti-racist, anti-capitalist, anti-imperialist, and a prison abolitionist. There you go. Just, there it is. To our crime. Mystery object that hit Kentucky home remains unidentified. A Federal Aviation Administration says a mysterious object that seemingly dropped from the sky and damaged a Kentucky man's mobile home didn't come from an airplane. Tommy Woolsey says a heavy, nearly foot-long canister-type object hit his home in Bergen, about 75 miles southeast of Louisville. But the FAA and Norfolk Southern Railway say their transportation units have nothing to do with the object that lodged the siding of his home. The National Guard nearby Fort Campbell military base have also denied responsibility. Authorities initially believe the canister may have fallen from a plane, but an FAA spokesman told the Courier-Journal their investigation ruled it out. She says the agency is turning the object over to the Mercer County Sheriff's Office for further investigation. And there the trail goes cold. So what is that canister? That's why I covered it. That's pretty fucking spooky. Police man shot 15 times, walks into emergency room. And he looked at 50 cents and said, hold my beer, bitch. Doctors warn of eye stroke after man blinded by phone games. I was using my right eye to look at my phone and I could see some words, but not others, said Wang of the frightening incident. He had an eye stroke caused by overuse of electronic items, excessive strain on vision. Son of a fucking bitch. Wow. And then last but not least, record rare breaking thunder snow falls in Amarillo. This weather front that's coming down, this is a, you know, I was, this is when I was going to talk about my, my own problems, but we already did. Um, this is a no shitter, folks. Understand, Farmer's Almanac did not say we're going to have that cold of a winter. This is winter. My daughter's 12 degree high yesterday, already in October. Um, 
So I'm not disputing there's climate change, but this whole global warming wahoo, this doesn't happen in October, folks. The amount of cold we're going to have in this country, pretty much most of the country east of the Rockies is going to be cold as fuck for a long time and cold as fuck, you know, in in relation to what your normal temperatures are. Um, It makes you think. Maybe we'll have that great winter. So, that concludes our fun stuff. Once again, we do lighter fare on the backside. Or this is America. We're going to go to a music break. This is from the movie um, The House That October Built, one of my favorite ones. It's kind of like Blair Witch, first-person shooting. It's not very good. It's low budget. But we've always loved the, the movie. And the song is Siren Whore. I can't find out who the audience is, but it's Spooky! So we're going to play a spooky. When we come in, you'll hear the hubbub over the skiff. Yes, Republicans play Democrats. And as you can expect, the media was not having it. And there was a lot of accusations.
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. Today, Democrats called it the most damaging testimony to date against the President of the United States. A West Point graduate with 50 years of service to the country testified that the President held up security aid to Ukraine in exchange for dirt on Vice President Biden and his family. And behind me on Capitol Hill, that diplomat, Ambassador Bill Taylor, is still testifying. Testimony that drew gasps inside the room because of his specificity and allegations. His opening statement has been published, and I can tell you it is worth reading. Weijia Zhang is at the White House tonight where they're calling this all a smear campaign. But let's begin with congressional correspondent Nancy Cordes on Capitol Hill. Nancy? Nora, if this were a trial, you'd call Ambassador Taylor the star witness. What he's been describing in great detail all day is exactly the quid pro quo that the president had been denying. We begin with what the Democrats tonight are calling the most damaging testimony yet in the impeachment inquiry. Some Republicans concerned tonight, too. What the top U.S. diplomat to Ukraine said today about President Trump and about that money withheld from Ukraine. That diplomat, Bill Taylor, testifying under subpoena that the order to withhold U.S. military aid came directly from the president and that giving Ukraine that money meant the Ukrainian president would have to say publicly he was investigating the Bidens, the company Joe Biden's son worked for, and the Democrats in the 2016 election. In my 10 short months in Congress, it's not even noon, right? And this is the, my most disturbing day in Congress so far. Democrats in the room say there were audible gasps and sighs as Taylor, a career diplomat, detailed the White House's pressure campaign. President Trump's off-repeated impeachment defense that there was no quid pro quo may have crumbled today under the weight of explosive testimony from the administration's top envoy to Ukraine. William Taylor reportedly describing to House investigators what he says the administration dangled in order to nudge Ukraine into announcing politically charged investigations. And then there was that other big impeachment headline, the president comparing the process to a lynching, a word with profound racial meaning and history. Peter Alexander is covering it all for us. Explosive and disturbing. That's how House Democrats tonight are describing the closed-door testimony of Bill Taylor. When watching those Republicans yesterday march, those white guys, those middle-aged, boring, nerdy-looking white guys walk down that steps was pathetic. And I, I challenge all of those guys two and three years from now, because they are living today. Donald Trump is going to be viewed very differently a few years from now. And I can't wait to be doing the campaign of anybody running against those guys to show these pathetic weenies walking down that step like lemmings. There was a 1984 oh. Super Bowl commercial for Apple so where they silly. showed these guys just marching in lockstep. How pathetic. Yeah. And Willie and I were just talking. Just as men, how do you go home and look at your wives and look at your children? Well, just I, I, think, as I, think most, I think I think pathetic people. 
I think I think I think uh, we'll mark you down as undecided on the future races. <laughs> uh, but I think I think uh, so many uh, Republicans right now who are blindly following Donald Trump out of loyalty will find a primary challenge in the next few years that aren't stained by the crimes, the misdemeanors, mm-hmm. uh, by by the, the the dirty deals that helped Vladimir Putin and the Russians. Uh, these defenses, it, 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 they know that time is coming. But right now, the main thing they want to do is just avoid answering questions about Ambassador Taylor's testimony. Yesterday, Florida Congressman Matt Gates led a stampede of House Republicans into the basement of the Capitol to storm the closed-door House impeachment inquiry, demanding to know what's going on in there. Now, there are already Republicans in there, by the way, who are hearing the testimony that's going on. It's it's happening and so were they just showing that in fact they they are listening to you know who who said get tougher on impeachment or was this just theater i think they're scared you know because uh trump said that any never trumpers are considered scum they called them scum in a tweet he's very presidential isn't he (laughs) but uh so so they don't want to be labeled as scum in his eyes and they're afraid of getting uh, thrown out of uh their job and it's just based on pure um you know fear just fear and cowardice in my opinion well i think trump is also afraid i think uh after taylor's um testimony that clearly tied him to this quid pro quo um, I, I think he's running scared and he's sort of trying to gin up this support. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in the law, we often say if you can't attack the facts, you attack the process. Mm-hmm. And so now you have the Republicans saying, oh, this is closed door hearings and we need to be a part of it. Um, and, and I think that's really what you're hearing. And, to, and Whoopi, what you said is really true. There are about 103 members uh, investigating um, this this inquiry, this impeachment inquiry. There are 48 Republicans of those 103 yeah. members. So, what so it's saying? almost they're not half. there. They're, they're, there. Re- they're represented. So this is nothing but political theater. And I, I really think it's just like much ado about nothing. But it was illegal. It's, it felt a lot like witness intimidation to uh-huh. me yeah. because we know that this was a, a Defense Department official. And um, I, I just, by any anyone else would be, you know, I think criminally investigated for that. Tonight, chaos at the Capitol. Rogue Republicans crash the impeachment inquiry, delaying a top defense official's testimony. Democrats call in the sergeant at arms to break up the protest. We're going to begin with a dramatic sideshow today at the impeachment inquiry. As if on cue, following President Trump's orders yesterday for Republicans to get tougher on impeachment, a group of Republicans barged into a closed-door hearing today. Most were not members of the committees conducting the inquiry and were therefore uninvited. But Republicans who are on the committees have been taking part in these closed-door hearings. Democrats saw the protest as merely a delay to protect the president against mounting evidence of misconduct. So they pressed on, questioning Laura Cooper, a senior defense department official who oversees Ukraine policy. Her testimony came a day after a top U.S. diplomat testified that he was told that the president withheld military aid to Ukraine unless Ukraine's president went public with a promise to investigate Democrats. Now, that is the quid pro quo that the president has been denying. Nancy Cordes has more on this day of political theater on Capitol Hill. And we begin tonight with the drama playing out on the Hill, the confrontation that came just one day after what may have been the most damaging testimony yet against President Trump. Tonight, even a leading Republican senator now saying the picture coming out is not a good one. 
And just today, the Pentagon official overseeing Ukraine policy, Laura Cooper there, arriving to testify, but was stopped before she could even start. When several House Republicans showed up, stormed the room, and made their demands. Good evening. There was a wild scene at the U.S. Capitol today, a day after a star witness in the impeachment inquiry contradicted President Trump's no quid pro quo claims over aid to Ukraine. House Republicans did their best to steal back the headlines today storming the hearing room in mass and criticizing the process of the inquiry itself as unfair. Chaos in the Capitol. More than two dozen House Republicans staging a protest today, barging into the secure room where impeachment investigators were deposing their latest witness. Those Republicans blasting House Democrats for holding hearings in private with no transcripts. Looks ridiculous. Uh, President Trump was happy with it. He, he tweeted, uh, thank you to House Republicans for being tough, smart, and understanding in, in detail the greatest witch hunt in American history. This is a disgraceful stunt. I'll go, I'll go further than SE would go, and I'll say this looks like a Klan group that is assembled outside of a jail trying to get the sheriff to let them in so they could deliver their own justice against somebody who's inside. It's not a good look for our democracy. It's not a good look for the Republican Party. 47 of them apparently are already already Republicans are already on these committees that are in this impeachment investigation out of 197 total House Republicans. That's a quarter of the entire Republican caucus is already represented. And they're and they're creating these political stunts in order to throw off their the attention. They're not focused on the issue of why Trump is being impeached. They're focused on how they can how they can uh, c complain about the process. And that is the important thing to point out, because if you take a step back and look at the bigger picture, we're talking about national security implications. And a lot of Republicans are focused on a short-sighted issue of appeasing this president. He said he wanted Republicans to be stronger and to show more support. Here they are, right? Compare that to what you saw from these diplomats that were testifying. And only to have, after everything that they went through, the president trash them uh, on Twitter and not have Mike Pompeo come to their defense. Think about the implications this has, not just for Ukraine and foreign policy, but all of our diplomats around the world. You have so many secretaries of defense, I don't care what party they belong to, tell you that the best deterrent for them having to step up and send troops in is diplomacy. And when you have the president say he doesn't even know who Bill Taylor is, mm -hmm. that really is an insult to our diplomatic corner. Can I just say one thing to you, Keith, respectfully? Uh, I, I think the Klan metaphor is a, was a little strong, and I, I'm not, I don't want to get into the whole thing, but earlier this week we were talking about lynching and using that word lightly, and I, I, you know, I, I'm not going to debate the history with, no, with I it. I understand. I use it purposely um, because I felt like there's, there's a visual problem, too, to have these group of almost all white men going in in defense of the white man who is already, I think, in, in by most accounts a racist instead of dealing with the issue of how this person is abusing his power as president of the United States. I just wanted to register and then we can move on. That I'm sure I, I'll I, get complaints on Twitter, I, I, but, I, 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 but I, I believe okay. that. Okay, anyway, mo moving on, I do want you to take a listen instead uh, to uh, White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grish. You know, sometimes when I'm recording, I totally lose track of relative time. And so when I get done with that segment... Think about an hour. I'm an hour and 45 minutes into this mother flubber, and I didn't even realize it. So we'll have to condense some of this. But here's um my take on the skiff. It was a political stunt. They're doing it because they can't get in. But our media betters, as you heard, weren't having it. 
Kyle Cheney, the GOP storm of the House in, intel room with cell phones in hand and forced police to conduct a sweep for possible security breaches. Blah, 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 blah. David Levitt, every GOP member invaded Skiff could, should be taken into custody by Capitol Police and questioned by FBI to determine they're serving a foreign intelligence service. They should also be removed from the House until the investigation is completed and votes out of office. Ah! Mm. Never Trumpers went on to Washington Examiner. The disruption of hearing was neither fine or even remotely acceptable. Amazingly, news of a hold did not leak out until August 29th. William Taylor, who knew that aid to Ukraine was on hold, told lawmakers. Amazingly, Taylor met Adam Schiff's staffer in Ukraine on August 25th, four days prior to Politico publishing the leak. That's why they're storming it. This is just fucking a parade. That's all it is. But you heard that soundbite. They should be arrested. They should be put in goddamn gulags. But do we remember? Do we remember the dim sit-in? And as funerals continue for the 49 who were murdered, Democrats today seize the floor of the House of Representatives. Let's start with just how unprecedented this is. This is truly unprecedented. Democrats' historic sit-in on the House floor. A historic takeover of really a historic protest. Historic. A historic sit-in protest. Turned into an historic morning. House Democrats on hour 22 of their historic sit-in. On- historic moment. Make no mistake, this was dramatic. What really stopped me, Congressman Israel, was watching John Lewis, Congressman Lewis, was delivering an impassioned speech this morning. Literally using tactics that you developed during the civil rights movement. How extraordinary is it that this is what it has taken? Now you see him literally sitting with your colleagues on the floor. Like nothing we have ever seen before. Something like this never happens. I can't remember anything like this. Which to me should be the recipe of getting a vote. To give you guys the next Lewis and Clark moniker because of your work in finding this particular path tonight. It's almost like we took a step back in time. Truly one of the most dramatic demonstrations on the House floor in modern American history. It was really something to watch overnight. A day of an extraordinary sit-in by House Democrats. They're extraordinary pictures. All right. Congressman, we've never seen anything like it. It's something we've just never seen before. Uh, two requests for you, Senator. Uh, number one is uh, stay in touch with us as this continues over the course of the evening. And number two is please hydrate. Were you surprised at how large this got? I mean, Kim Kardashian was tweeting about it. They're so brave. It is democracy. Yeah. So I had to cover the skiff just for the media hypocrisy on it. When the Dems do political kubak. Yeah, I used to have a kabuki theater, if anybody remembers that, but I quit doing it. And, and it, it's okay when Dems do it, but when Republicans do it, oh, we, we can't have that. So let's get into our hate section. I just wanted to cover the skiff for that. Um, there is so much bullshit going on. I don't believe anything about the impeachment. I don't think anything he did was anything different than Obama. Whether it's right or wrong, it really doesn't fucking matter. It's not impeachable. It's just another way to limit his ability to win an election. That's why they're doing it. That's why the media is doing it. So we're going to start our hate with this is a woman who literally lived through the Holocaust, and this is how she was treated on a college campus. I don't give a fuck. It's my body. It's my body. You're a fucking 
realize the biggest terror threat in this country is white men, most of them radicalized right, up to the right. All punches are not equal morally. To open to each other and talk to each other. And I want you to know that many Palestinians and Israelis are doing that. There are many organizations mm -hmm. and they're writing emails to me. Whether Israel should exist, yes, I think Israel should exist. So my, I'm, going to tie, I'm going to tie it back to my original question. Do you support or condemn the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people? Because I the establishment of the Israeli yes. state and the idea of Zionism ties back to the right of the, Pal yes. the Israeli state in, at okay. any cost. And that cost yeah. is the Palestinian yeah. people. I, under, I am a result of experiences that you have been okay. through. I am a survivor of the Intifada. And that is way after 1948 when the, pa the Palestinian land was, uh, was occupied. I went through minimal amounts of things that the, the, the Palestinian people historically went through. And I'm asking you, and it's yeah. disappointing to know that a Holocaust no. survivor would, would remain neutral in a situation of, in, of injustice. It's not a matter of neutral. It's a matter of, I think the two sides have to really, who are much more experienced than I, it's not total guilt or innocence on either side. The establishment of my feeling, and also that there are people who are much more expert in this, and I always feel I'm asking for your that, I shouldn't, that I shouldn't be, no, so I feel, <clears throat> so one thing I feel, so let me tell you, sometimes I feel people express, have a very strong opinion on issues on which they don't have sufficient knowledge. And I'm, I'm always troubled by that. And this is an issue that I don't have enough knowledge to say a yes or no answer. I think it's very complicated. And there are many people who are trying to, who are hopeful that this will happen, yeah. that there'll be two states, and ultimately they will live in peace. Well, I can tell you. I, I think we I need to move agree, on. But I think it's really disappointing to know that right, someone who's gone through those experiences believes yep. so. I am honestly, I'm so sorry to hear what happened to you, but I'm honestly very hurt by the fact that I, I cannot yeah, gain your support. Sad. Have a great day. Thank you very much. Yeah. Fucking smirking. They were smirking. They're just professional protesters. That's all they are. But the ethnic cleansing. Really? Really. Florida man has been arrested after he spat on a man and slapped his Make America Great hat, according to police. Mathis Ajibul, I don't want to say his name, A-G-P-L-E, 43, approached Mega Hat wearing Robert Youngblood, 67-year-old man, at a restaurant in the city in Vero Beach on Friday evening. According to the arrest affidavit, Youngblood told an Indian River County Sheriff's Office deputy he was sitting at a bar at Hurricane Grill, you should go back to Russia, you fucking communist. That's what he said. He slapped the brill of Youngblood's hat before leaning over a, a gate and spitting on him. The victim claimed the suspect then left the scene, and he said he was glad he's being arrested. Democrats. So compassionate. And then we have this, David M. Friedman. As we approach the one-year anniversary of the horrific Tree of Life massacre in Pittsburgh, I've added my name to the AGSC show up for Shabbat site. I stand for all those fighting anti-Semitism, whether in the U.S., Israel, or elsewhere. We surely will prevail over this vile scourge. Code Pink National Director and self-described Jewish lefty Ariel Gold state for the record that the real vile scourge is Jewish supremacy. Her tweet, go away. 
you and your Jewish supremacy, white nationalism contributed, contributed to it happening. Seth Mandel, Code Peak National Director, marks the anniversary of Tree of Life by blaming the Jews. A tweet sent from a propaganda tour in Iran. Perfect. Mm. Then you, we have the real anti-Semite, Representative Ilian Omar. A nine-month-old died as a result, result, a direct result of Trump's cuts to Medicaid and CHIP. He is one of a million children to lose health care. Let that sink, sink in. But here's the problems. The baby's lips were turning blue from a lack of oxygen in the blood when his mother, Christina Johnson, rushed him to an hospital. Two, the hospital treated him even though he didn't have insurance. Three, he wasn't covered because the mom didn't submit, submit the f- proper paperwork. Four, he's now recovered and he never died. No media going back. Why did you say that? Why did you say that? Bette Midler, this is okay on Twitter. Where's Rand Paul's neighbor when we need him? Yeah. I do not promote violence, but Rand Paul says the Kurds are being ingrates for taking their frustration on the U.S. troops, which is a good reminder for us all to be more grateful for the neighbor who beat the shit out of Rand Paul. Yeah. That's okay. Then we have a rapper. He brings a guy on stage. I'm not going to play it. You must yell, fuck Donald Trump. He wouldn't do it, so he cursed him out and kicked him off the stage. Yeah, that was a thing that was going on lefty Twitter, that it was just so great. Look at this. Oh, great rapper. Never heard of him. To our media hate. I got to play this. I was going to bump it for time, but I got to play it. MSNBC panel insults young conservatives as Fox-addled office spankers. MSNBC's Jason Johnson lumps Clarence Thomas with white supremacist lynchist. Yeah. They, he's the same as lynchers. Okay. CNN analysts dismiss Republicans jerks, bunch of white men. HBO real-time all-out dictator Trump is like Nazis Goebbels. John Meacham smears America was founded to protect slavery. CNN had Fox is not a news organization. PBS pundit is the capper. It would be the soundbite of the day if I did that. Yeah. If Trump counties that won in 2016 elected them, well, yeah, of course, they'd no longer be racist. Is that how that works? on the right among young people now there are far fewer young republicans and young democrats but the young republicans i spoke to they are they are fired up and rather than fighting an, an economic war or an inequality they're choosing to fight a cultural war now, when i asked young people you know right. what's so what is great about america what makes them optimistic they talked about our civil liberties and not losing those to what they would consider to be far-left, extremist, Democrat candidates. These young people I'm talking to today, they're not the children of 9-11, the, the children of Fox News. And, and their first political impression, when I asked them, almost to a person, was seeing their, their, their parents upset during the 2008 election. Mom was really excited that Obama won, and the dad was oh, pouting wow. for the rest of the weekend. So this is the era of this 
again, it's a small portion, but it's about a third or so of the youth electorate, and it's a culture war that's coming back. But Charles, are we really going to launch a culture war over a Fox News false narrative? The truth is, the world is still being run and dominated by white guys. And your son isn't going to not get into college because a diversity candidate, and he's not going to be, your son isn't, go, isn't going to find himself in a legal quagmire if he asks the wrong girl out on a date. This is a false narrative that's really going to cause a culture war? Give me a break. Uh, yes, it is a false narrative, uh, but we are in a culture war that is exactly right. A lot of these issues are part of this cultural narrative, and I think that we need to recognize that and, and, and how that plays out. And, and, and Donald Trump does play to that anxiety, which is, you know, who loves America, who wants to destroy America, who loves God, who hates God. But, you know, you, you started off this segment by playing that cut from Ronald Reagan in 1980, are you better off four years, you know, than you were four years ago. And I remember what the mood was in the late 1970s, and it was this sense of anxiety, this, this lack of faith and confidence in the future, all of that uncertainty. And I think that's what you're picking up, that a lot of young people right now, are, you know, will they be better off than their parents? What is the future hold? Is America going to be more prosperous, more, um, you know, more inclusive, you know, 20 years from now, 10 years from now than it has been in the past? And I'm not sure that that's what they're getting. What I get is this real sense of anxiety, the real sense of cultural dislocation. And I think that's going to be a big, big dynamic. So, you know, in 1980, it was, you know, well, you're better off than you were four years ago. Next year, it's going to be, can you take four more years of this? We're, we're in a cultural war. Like, the things men did 10 years ago that were horrifying, they got away with. They don't anymore. That's a mm -hmm. radical change. And people, there are a lot of straight guys in this country who are really angry about that. <laughs> I'm so sorry that they can't spank a female's butt at work, but, but giving up privilege doesn't mean you're going to lose an opportunity. It means recognize your privilege and build a bigger table. People don't love to hear that they should recognize their privilege. That, that, it's just not, I wouldn't run with that campaign. I think that people in Wisconsin do not feel privileged. Just keep that in mind. Right, right. Even if they are, they're, they're slightly less privileged than they are before, and that's enough to infuriate them. And, and I think that the young Republicans I talk to, they're not thinking through all of these issues, right? They're finding the avatar, which is Trump, and, and they're using kind of their own local circumstances to kind of to move into that, um, into that, essentially that bucket, right? They're concerned about losing their guns to far-left communists. That's the way in which they describe the Democratic candidates. I said, you have $100,000 in debt. Every single Democratic candidate has a different plan to relieve you of that debt so you can invest it in a home, your family, vacation, whatever you want to do. They don't believe it they don't even want to hear it charlie you, you bring up a good point people don't feel privileged i completely understand that but going back to a, a cultural situation from years ago isn't yeah. going to make those people's schools better or their job opportunities better no, I, 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 I get that point, but, but again, when we talk about a cultural war, what they feel, they don't feel privileged, they feel despised, they feel ignored. You know, and I'm, I'm, look, I'm not carrying water for them, but I do think that at some point, this is what we have to do, is you have to actually listen to what they are saying. And, you know, Wisconsinites, I mean, these are the salt of the earth. You know, they're, 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 they're not sitting around saying, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump because I can't spank, you know, a woman anymore. What they want is they want to be sure 
that that their values are at least are respected. And I think that that when you talk to them in that particular way, you can say, look, you know, do you really want to support Donald Trump because you are fundamentally fair and decent people? And I think that's an important message. Well, then if we can all be more neighborly and respectful and listen to everyone around us, then maybe we could progress. Thank you all so much. Really important. Uh, I'm not surprised. This is what the president does. But I think in the grander scheme of things, I'm old enough to remember uh, when we had a Supreme Court justice who referred to him being asked questions, Clarence Thomas, as the high-tech lynching of an uppity black man. It's always been fascinating to me that Republican parties and the far right in this country, who are primarily responsible for massive domestic terrorism and lynching of black people in this country, purely for the fact that we were trying to vote, are always the first people to invoke that imagery when they are being held accountable for their behavior. But I also want to add somebody besides Lindsey Graham to the list of people who should be ashamed of themselves. Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina, came forward and said, well... You know, maybe not lynching, but it's, it's, it's a death row. No, this has nothing to do with death. The only people who are dying are kids on the border and Kurds right now because of this president. This president is being held accountable by the Constitution that he refuses to follow for his own bad behavior. And using this sort of red herring of, of, of racial animus in order to activate his side is not going to distract us from holding this president accountable. It's disgusting and it's typical, but we're not going to fall for it in the media or the American citizens this time. Let me just put you on the spot, Jason. You think it's a mistake to cover it at all? Um, I don't think it's a mistake to cover it at all, but I think it has to be covered in the context of, of what we did today. I mean, we started with William Taylor, because I think what the president said was to distract us from talking about William Taylor. He doesn't want us to talk about the impeachment. So we can identify what he's attempting to do and counter it by making sure our coverage stays focused on what he's really responsible for. Okay, and know that, know that if you disagree, next time you, be, you, you better give it to me, at least Jordan. Um, <laughs> We've come to expect this of Donald Trump, as sad as that is. But I, I, I was actually galled to see Lindsey Graham, you know, co-sign the statement. Lindsey Graham should be ashamed to have failed to uh, call the president out over mm -hmm. something that is just completely reprehensible. And I don't know how Lindsey Graham manages to look his African-American constituents in the eye the next time he's Thank down you. in South Carolina. Yeah, he probably just doesn't care because the way that he responded, it shows that he really didn't think that it was that big of a deal when, I hate to say it, if you are not cognizant of that history, look at what could happen again. Frank, um, Jeffrey, I mean, I would just, the, the hypocrisy is stunning because we remember the Benghazi hearings. It wasn't that long, you know, for Watergate, we have to rely on people as old as Jeffrey, people as old right. as you, Jeffrey, right. who to come out and tell us what happened. OK, we call it, it, Moses. But yeah, with this right, one, yeah. we remember Benghazi and they held the hearings in private and they had their uh, reasons. They stated them at the time. They thought it would be less of a spectacle. And now, three years later, they're storming the skiff, the secure room with their cell phones, which is not allowed yeah. to try to create a spectacle. L last night on AC 360, there were several references to one of the congressional leaders of this ridiculous protest. Protest. And he's a congressman from Alabama named Mo Brooks. But I kept hearing Mel Brooks because it's so much sound. I mean, th this whole spectacle yesterday seemed like something out of a Mel Brooks movie. This ridiculous, you know, this protest to be allowed inside when many of the members of the of of the protest were actually members of the committee inside. They could have walked in at any point. I mean, the, you know, it, it's a sign of desperation. You know, they captured a news cycle, but. 
I don't know what good that news cycle did them because they looked like such jerks. Yeah, you um, thought Mel Brooks, I thought an episode of Veep. I mean, it, it really <laughs> looked like a stunt. And it also, looking at these members coming in, you saw a handful of women. Other than that, you just saw a bunch of white men. And I just thought to myself, this is not what America looks like right now, right? And so I don't know what the point is that they were trying to make by storming this hearing. Uh, serious I issues, serious ramifications are coming out of what we're hearing from the people who are testifying who are lifelong uh, diplomats that have served this country, and this is what follows. And it comes, as you said, two days after the president said that Republicans need to fight harder. Right, they and if this harder. is all they have, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, I, 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 the facts speak louder than these public protests. So um, I have many times read the dictator checklist on our show, the things Donald Trump does that are like a dictator. I'm not going to read the whole thing again. You know most of them. Points family members, scary rallies, says lock up my opponents, is in it for personal financial gain, loves other dictators, state-run TV, parades. This week, though, wow, he added like five to the list, uh, calling people human scum, physically disrupting hearings. When it gets physical, investigating the investigators, he said, you people in your phony emoluments clause. It's, you know, in the Constitution. I'll get to the ethnic cleansing in a little while. But um, it, I, I feel like this is the not going gently edition of the dictator checklist. This, this is not, he is, it's going to get uglier. You, you think he's just going to let us take him out of there? No, human scum. He is not. It's going to be human scum and goons breaking up meetings, and I don't know what's next. What are your predictions? Uh, you know, we use the term authoritative tendencies. Let, let's stop with that. He's an all-out dictator. You know, I took a lot of heat on my show going through uh, Nazi Germany in the, in the 30s and the parallels. And what I will say is this, and I've known Donald Trump for 20 years. He's a sociopath, and whatever the worst tyrants in history were capable of doing, he is capable of doing. We all keep saying it can't happen here, it can't happen here. It is happening here. And people need to be frightened. John, thanks for coming in because you're good on this subject from being from the South, from Swanee, and you know all about this going back to the days of Andrew Jackson. Populism and racism, Trump is a, he always goes back to square one and plays the card. He did it again today, calling himself a victim of a lynching. He absolutely went to an ancient and uh, troubling trope when he was in trouble. This is a guy who rose to power on the birther conspiracy. He has ridden this uh, terrible American instinct, and it is an American instinct. This is a country that was founded to, and in many ways, protected slavery as an institution. And for then a century after Appomattox, we enforced apartheid in my part of the world and it's only been gone insofar as it's been gone for half a century just over half a century and so this is all the day before yesterday and what the president has done is tried to undo what minimal progress we've made to actually become a more perfect union all for his own personal benefit look this is a very important day in 
not only in this era, but arguably in American history. This is like when John Dean uh, testified yeah, in 1973. This is like when the smoking gun tape came out, uh, the transcript, which remember, and you know well, it wasn't until the very end of, the, of a 26-month process that Republicans finally abandoned Nixon. So there's a great moral and constitutional test confronting the Republican Party at this hour, which is, are you going to believe the testimony of a career civil servant who has no conceivable agenda that I could detect yeah. and has laid out a classic test of, of, of whether we believe in the rule of law and we honor the framers. Why is it that conservatives are so in love with the Federalist Papers except when it comes to this? Can someone explain that to me? You know, um, unelected bureaucrats, you know, yeah. You know, like General, yeah, MacArthur, sure. General MacArthur, I mean, a lot of people are like... How would you characterize, given all that we just said in the last 10 minutes, the current relationship between CNN and the Trump White House? Oh, it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, look, uh, here's what I would say. Uh, yesterday, the Secretary of Defense, uh, Esper, sat down for a 30-minute interview with Christian Amanpour. Peter Navarro, uh, uh, who works in the White House, was here today uh, on this panel on this stage. So... You know, we have uh, we have a dialogue with them. We have a, uh, a a relationship with them. There are several people uh, within the administration who are happy to come on CNN and defend their positions and and their take on things. There are others who are afraid to come on CNN and and within the administration and aren't willing to do so. Uh, so you know, I, I would say it's it's you know a mixed bag. Uh, I always say, look. We're not looking for an antagonistic uh, relationship at all. Uh, uh, we're not, we're not, we don't set out to be uh, pro-Trump. We don't set out to be anti-Trump. We set out to be pro-truth. Now, I understand in this day and age why being pro-truth can be construed as anti-Trump, but that's not our problem. That's not our fault. We're just here to ferret out the truth. And, uh, and so our relationship obviously is not, uh, you know, is not perfect, uh, but it's also not our job to have a perfect relationship with the White House. It's our job to tell the truth and to hold those in power accountable, and that's what we're doing. And would you like to wait? Mark, there are 18 still in the race. We had Tim Ryan, the congressman right. from Ohio, drop out uh, just just yesterday. But 18 still running. And there is reporting out there, you've seen it, that some Democrats are getting anxious because they're worried they still don't have a horse that can beat Donald Trump. Uh, how widespread do you think that worry is among I'd Democrats? I'd say it's a, it's a, a lively anxiety. I mean, the, the flaws <laughs> or the defects of the top four candidates uh, I mean, on ideological grounds, uh, fear, fear the Democrats have with Senator Warren and Senator Sanders, that they're far to the left, that they're vying for a, sort of a liberal sliver of the electorate right now, that, that uh, Vice President Biden may not be uh, the Joe Biden that we come to know and love in previous years, or that Pete Buttigieg is a mayor of a very small city uh, with a male partner uh, married to, is uh, maybe... Uh, 37, just a little bit more than uh, the country's ready for, and especially in an election where they want the referendum to be on a, a flawed, damaged 
manifestly imperfect incumbent. Uh, so, you know, I think that whether it's Michelle Obama or whatever else, I mean, Democrats are kind of casting around looking. I think the key question Democrats have to face is this, Judy. There are 206 counties that Barack Obama carried twice that Donald Trump carried in 2016. And if the Democrats can go back and carry those counties again, these are people, you can't be a racist. Um, and I think that's the question. Can Democrats do that? And is that the kind of candidate and campaign they want to run? I had a shocker I was going to play, but I just won't. I'll tell you what the title was. CNN Baldwin calls out Dems for using the word lynching. It actually happened, which really, really surprised me. I mean, I was just really surprised. Then Trump went to the World Series. He got booed. People said stuff. This is now our third. We'll have a fourth with Katie Hill. Media hypocrisy. Meanwhile, overnight, President Trump attended Game 5 of the World Series right here in Washington, and he didn't get the warmest welcome. Take a look. Mixed reaction there. You can hear some in the crowd booing him and even chants of, lock him up. The White House declined to comment overnight. Now to the World Series, where President Trump watched last night's game from a luxury suite at Nationals Park in Washington, where he received what you would call less than a warm welcome from many people in the crowd. Fans booed Mr. Trump, as you can hear, and some chanted, lock him up, when he was announced on the public address system and shown on the big screen. The president overnight getting an earful from a sellout World Series crowd in the nation's capital, where over 90% of voters supported Hillary Clinton in 2016. Some chanting, lock him up. Now to Chicago, where angry crowds rallied against President Trump on his first official visit to the city. Thousands took to the streets, many chanting, lock him up. The president went to Chicago to address an international conference of police chiefs and used the occasion to slam Chicago's top police official. Only one of all people, Mika Brzezinski, went that, that it was inappropriate to say it, but you didn't hear the gnashing of teeth. Now remember, when they said lock her up, that was un-American, racist, sexist, whatever they can flip out of their mouth. That's how they acted, but they were giddy. They were giddy over there on CNN. Then we had Facebook listen to the bullshit, AOC and that guy who's he's done all the impeachment inquiries, a black guy with 1970 Jerry Curl, about how many LGBT people do you have, Mark Zuckerberg? Do you see a potential problem here with a complete lack of fact-checking on political advertisements? Well, Congresswoman, I think lying is bad, and I think if you were to run an ad that had a lie, that would be bad. That's different from it being, uh, from it, from, for in our position, the right thing to do to prevent uh, your constituents or people in an election from seeing that you had lied. Um, so we can, so you won't take down lies, or you will take down lies. I think it's just a pretty simple yes or no. Congresswoman, uh, in I'm not talking about spin. I'm talking about actual. In, yes, in, most cases, in a democracy, okay. I believe that people should be able to see for themselves. What politicians that they may or may not vote for? So are you won't take judge them their down. Character for themselves. So you won't. Take, you may flag that it's wrong, but you won't take it down. Uh, Congresswoman, it's uh, 
it, it depends on the context that it shows up, organic post, as the, the treatment is a little One question, one more question. In your ongoing dinner parties with far-right figures, some of who advanced the conspiracy theory that white supremacy is a hoax, did you discuss so-called social media bias against conservatives, and do you believe there is a bias? Uh, Congresswoman, um, so I don't remember everything that was in the, send in, in the question. That's all right. I'll move on. Can you explain why you've named The Daily Caller, a publication uh, well-documented with ties to white supremacists as an official fact-checker for Facebook? Congresswoman, sure. We actually don't appoint the independent fact-checkers. They go through an independent organization called the Independent Fact-Checking Network that has a rigorous standard for who they allow to, uh, to serve as a fact-checker. So... You would say that white supremacist tied uh, publications meet a rigorous standard for fact-checking? Thank you. Uh, Congresswoman, I would say that we're not the one assessing that, that standard. The International Fact-Checking Network is the one who is setting that standard. True that the Libra Association oversees the Libra Project. Uh, Congressman, yes. And is it true that global corporations make up the association? Congressman, the, the association is made of, uh, today, 21 companies and nonprofit organizations as well. Of the 21, how many are headed by women? Uh, Congressman, I do not know the answer to that off the top of my head, but I can get it you, for you. Well, I believe you can get it, Mr. Zuckerberg, but I, one would assume that you would know who heads these corporations that are going to be running this global company. Um, how many of them are minorities, Mr. Zuckerberg? Congressman, I, I do not know off the top of my head. Are there any members of the LGBTQ plus community associated with this association, Mr. Zuckerberg? Uh, Congressman, I, I don't know the answer. Who, con uh, who acknowledge? There are many people who acknowledge that they are part of the community. Sorry? You do not, you do not know. Mr. Zuckerberg... Is it true that the overwhelming majority of persons associated with this endeavor are white men? Uh, Congressman, I, I don't know off the top of my head the list of the people who are running the organizations in, in the, the association. Are you telling me, I think as you said to me before, you plan on doing no fact-checking on political ads? Uh, Chairwoman? Our, our policy is that we do not fact-check politicians' speech. And the reason for that is that we believe that in a democracy, it is important that people can see for themselves what politicians are saying. Political speech is some of the most scrutinized speech already in the world. Do you um, fact-check on any ads at all? Uh, yes. Describe what you fact-check on. Well, Chairwoman, actually, uh, th thank you for the opportunity to clarify. Facebook itself actually does not, does not fact check. 
What we do is, we have feedback that, that people in our community don't want to see viral hoaxes or, or, or kind of so widespread. So let me be clear, you do no fact checking on any ads, is that correct? Uh, Chairwoman, what we do is we work with uh, a set of independent fact checkers who... Somebody fact checks on ads. You, have, you contract with someone to do that, is that right? Uh, Chairwoman, yes. And tell me, who is it? that they fact-checked on? Uh, Chairwoman, what we do is when content is getting a lot of distribution and is flagged uh, by members of our community or by our technical systems, it can go into a queue to be reviewed by a set of independent fact-checkers. Uh, they can't fact-check everything, but the things that they get to, and, and, and if they okay. mark something as false, then we... All right, my time like has expired, and someone else will continue on this line of questioning. So in it, of course, AOC saying that basically Daily Caller, a bunch of white supremacists, racists, and why should they build a fact check? I love the response. In response to AOC recent comments regarding Daily Caller from our publisher, Neil Patel, our reporting has directly contributed to putting four members of the alt-right in prison and sending two more on the run. A great personal risk to our reporters on the ground. And as a minority-owned and minority-run news company with a diverse staff, including many African-American, Jewish, Asian, and other minority employees, any allegation that our company is in a league with white supremacist types is offensive. We have denounced white supremacy in the past and are happy to do so again. We share nothing with them and they're welcome at... And they... We share nothing with them, and they aren't welcome at our company for a sitting member of Congress to knowingly repeat such spurious, spurious allegations, especially during these polarized, violent times. It's not just despicable. It endangers our staff. Amber Athey. Indeed, the false claim that we are a bunch of white supremacists recently led to a member of Antifa doxing nearly our entire reporting staff. Our home addresses, as well as those of our families, were posted online with the ominous message for Antifa followers to come and get us. And do we not all the time say that we're endangering, Trump is endangering reporters? AOC did it. Media didn't even blink. Because once again, anybody who's conservative, well, you, you just can't have that. You can't have that. So to Katie Hill. Oh, this went good. I'm going to abbreviate this because I have so much shit. But CBS, NBC, never touch it. MSNBC hides it. Joe Cunningham. Okay, folks, I have some thoughts and opinions this morning. He's the guy that broke the story. I'm going to share them. You know what really pisses me off? When a non-traditional news media outlet breaks a major story in our traditional media, do nothing. One, ignore the story due to partisan agenda. Two, run with the story based on the subject response to the story. And three, revert to the story without linking or giving proper credit to the original outlet. Fun fact, Janav Lar broke a major story. The stories of Representative Katie Hill of California was involved in multiple affairs while in office, one of them being with a congressional staffer, which is against the rules. The story is not Hill's response to the affair going public. That is only part of the larger story that Jen broke. The story is also not the release of the photos, which were given to Jen for the purpose of proving the affair was real. Jen, by the way, used just excellent judgment in using and censoring a lot of the photos. Proving the affair was real when not posting straight-up revenge porn. There were, as she admitted, even more scandalous ones. So if you wanted to, if, should we, if, if we wanted to shame Hill, we would have. 
It is a news story. It does call into question Hill's use of power over her staff, and it should be covered by mainstream outlets. What should not happen, however, is the attempt to effectively write Jenna Villar out of the history of this scandal. It would not be public. It would not be as explosive as if it, without her. For several outfits, that seems to be the aim. They are simultaneously trying to write Jen and Red State's role out of the story so they can try to pass it off as an original reporting, while also providing cover for Hill by framing it as anything other than what it is. The use of power by a politician for sexual purposes. It is simply not fair to Jen, who has put in weeks of working chasing this story, to write her out of it. The very least some of these outlets can do is link to her original work. Be honest, please. Show people where this came from and for god's sake don't act like this is just something you stumbled across he's right but it goes worse than that they have tax deferred drinking missing flights but what's the response e carroll one of trump's accusers when 15 women come forward to say congressman katie hill sexually assaulted them belittled them and sneer at their honor then i'll pay attention John Bresham, Health Exit Committee is investigating Delegate Michael F.Q. San Nicholas over allegations they had sexual relations with his campaign, with his staffers, and did campaign finance fuck up. That came out this week. Media's ignoring it. Comfortably smug. It doesn't seem like it's been a week, but a week ago, intrepid red state reporter blah, 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 published the first of a series of shocking, newsworthy story about Katie Hill. For the next four days, the mainstream media ignored the news that Katie Hill carried a sexual relationship. Then on Tuesday, the hacks of Politico and other mainstream news outlets printed Hill's denial as gossip, painting her as a victim, even though she had total control of the paychecks of the staffer she was sleeping with. Why did Hill confirm she had sex with a campaign staffer, but not a congressional staffer? Graham Kelly, because sleeping with your taxpaying payer-funded subordinate is against the rules of Congress, and she could get in big trouble. Then they dropped another bombshell that the campaign staffer Hill was sleeping with said she was terrified of Hill. Babe, I have really unpleasant realization yesterday and this. I'm terrified of pushing a back against you or upsetting you. I've seen how you treat Kenny, and I think that I could cause any issue. That's fucking the text. Even if I'm very worried about how you are acting, that very quickly you will decide you don't want me in your life. I hope I'm wrong, but that's not really a good way for a partnership to be. I hope you know that I'm telling you something I know you don't want to hear. It's because it's really important and not just make your life more difficult. That's power dynamic, is it not? On the same day, Red State dropped another article confirming Hill's relationship with her male congressional staffer, a relationship she continued to deny. Red State even had texts from Hill's staff and friends to back up the claims. Hill doubled down on her denial. The media continued to print her lies without including any reporting of the proof of her relationship with a congressional staffer, Graham Kelly. The Congressional Ethics Health Committee, House Ethics Committee, finally got involved on Wednesday saying that they're looking into it for misconduct. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there because Politico, Michael Calderon, I looked back at red state writer Jen Villar's coverage of Katie Hill's scandal and light of resignation because she resigned. I was going to leave that for the end result, but I forgot it was written in here. Along with her support for GOP candidates for the House seat. In a video today, Hill decried a coordinated campaign carried out by right-wing media and Republican opponents enabling and perpetuating my husband's abuse, providing him of a platform. Van Lahr's views, like red state leanings, are no secret. She worked in Republican politics and the site is conservative as its owner, Salem Media Group. But Van Lahr's shift from reporting on Hill and publishing what some deemed revenge porn to promote 
promoting Republicans were Hill old job as blurring of roles that would be unacceptable of mainstream means mainstream newsrooms. In the days leading up to the 2018 election, Van Lahr wrote an op-ed on why she supported Knight in the race against Hill, and in July she praised the Republican who at the time was planning to run with Hill in 2020. Hanging out with the future con- Congresswoman Susan Villardas today, she wrote, along with hashtags such as Run Susan Run and Save California. Van Lahr did not respond to a Twitter direct message request to discuss her coverage. Multiple representatives of Town Hall Media, which oversee Red State, did not respond to phone call and email. Maybe they didn't respond because they see Calderon's exercise for what it is. A blatant, brazen attempt to assassinate Van Lahr's character while accusing Hill's unethical conduct. They went after the reporter and have the temerity to say she used to work as a Republican. So did Chuck Todd. So did George Stephanopoulos. So did fucking Jake Tapper. Almost every news person on the left worked for lefties. But it's not Hill. It's the people reporting. Kira... So Politico, instead of working to verify the facts on a viral story of ethics violations involving a sitting congresswoman, chose to use the word count to do an expose on the reporter who is Gasp, a conservative writer at a blog called Red State. Jay Caruso, it's just bizarre that a red state writer would support Republicans. It's really a shocking extent to which outlets are going to portray Hill as a victim. She is credibly accused of multiple relationships with subordinates. This is incredible. Investigating a reporter for a conservative website. Remember all the hand-wringing? A Democratic rep was facing multiple ethics committee complaints and investigation, but the concerned media dude about a free press are now investigating the real culprit, the fucking journalist. That's how far they went. They even brought Jill Filipovic on CNN. Publications have responsibility to not publish revenge porn under the veil of anonymity. It's shameful that Red State published the Hill photos, and even more shameful that they are covering up their providence. Don't give anonymity to people leaking nude pics for revenge. Same woman. Hell, everyone. She did an article. Follow more women on Twitter. Anyone that follows Beltway Twitter knows it's deeply insular and self-involved world dominated by men who almost exclusively speak to each other. But now there's research to prove it. When male journalists reply to other Beltway journalists, they reply to another male 91.5% of the time, according to a study by published in the International Journal of Press Ethics titled Twitter Makes It Worse, Political Journalist Gender Echo Chamber and the Amplification of Gender Bias. Of the 25 reporters who received the most replies from male political reporters, zero women. If you want to know why women don't spend as much time on Twitter as men, feel free to read the replies to this totally innocuous tweet. And in her article, it was only cover females. Hmm. Then you got Matt Dowd. Katie Hill resigning while having a presidential president and two Supreme Court justices all credibly accused of sexual harassment assault is a bit like Jay Walker going to jail while at Capone roams free. While Al Capone roams free. That, that was his tweet. Oliver Darcy, red state reporter who wrote initial story promotes Republican to win seat. CNN expose. They went after her. Seems like Oliver is admitting that traditional media would not have covered the story because it doesn't mean a supposed bar for mainstream Meet Newsroom, Van Leer Schiff reporting on Hill and publishing that some have deemed revenge porn to promote Republican for Hill job is blurring of roles that would be unacceptable in mainstream newsroom. Oh, really? 
When the fuck have you not pushed Dems? Name a time CNN didn't promote Democratic candidates. They bring Dems on and let them talk unrepeat. It's like Meet the Press, Chuck Todd. A Dem comes on, they're never challenged, they're never given opposing views, they're never ever, ever, ever asked to any tough questions. It's all powder puff baseball, man. It's fucking easy shit. In the media, on TV, the Katie Hill story sounded like this. We're going to turn out of the fallout from the resignation of House Democrat Katie Hill. She is fighting for her reputation after resigning in the face of an ethics investigation into her relationship with a staffer, sparking a debate now about double standards. ABC's Lindsay Davis has the story. Questions are swirling this morning in the wake of the resignation of first-term Congresswoman Katie Hill. The 32-year-old from California's 25th District was facing an ethics investigation into allegations she had a relationship with a member of her congressional staff, an allegation she denies, though Hill does admit to a sexual relationship with a campaign staffer. I'm hurt. I'm angry. The path that I saw so clearly for myself is no longer there. Hill, who's in the midst of a nasty divorce, released a statement over the weekend denouncing her resignation, calling her husband abusive and accusing him of leaking naked pictures of her that were later posted online. On Monday, she pledged to battle revenge porn in this video to her supporters. I will fight to ensure that no one else has to live through what I just experienced. Some people call this electronic assault, digital exploitation. Others call it revenge porn. As the victim of it, I call it one of the worst things that we can do to our sisters and our daughters. Some are now calling her resignation a double standard. Overnight, 2020 presidential contender Kamala Harris told BuzzFeed News that she, quote, respected Hill's decision to resign, but said, let's also speak the truth that men and women are not held to the same standards, adding, I mean, look at who's in the White House. And some are also pointing to Representative Duncan Hunter. The California congressman has remained in office despite charges that he used taxpayer dollars to carry on multiple affairs, including with people on... California Congresswoman Katie Hill resigned on Sunday after scandalous allegations that she had an affair with a congressional staff member. Her resignation coming after the Ethics Committee had launched an investigation. This is a pretty shocking turn of events. She was such a star. She was on House Oversight. She was on leadership in the conference? Yeah, she was a rising star, there's no doubt. She was one of the named ones that we know about. For the big blue wave. Uh, yes, and uh, it's, a, it's a loss. Uh, but, you know, I think there's a double, double standard on the Hill, which is, uh, one is that women are treated more strictly than a man. And Democrats are following um, the strictures of the Ethics Committee and others on sexual misconduct more strongly than uh, Republicans are. Our president gets away with so much more than Katie Hill. And here we have a really, really abusive husband uh, calling her to account. I mean, the, the, you know, Nancy Pelosi is, is, is doing the right thing, but it's still something of a tragedy. The leaking of these photographs and publishing of these photographs of her would be considered a crime. So while, yes, on the one hand, she is the subject of this ethics investigation, she's also uh, purportedly a victim of a crime. The other thing that um, someone on, uh, on the All On Staff raised today that I thought was a great point is that, like, Katie Hill, I think, is around 34. Mm-hmm. 32, um, 32 right? Mm-hmm. There is an entire generation of yes. Americans. yes. 
who have been taking selfies and images of themselves in various contexts, whether at parties or in intimate relationships and consenting adults. And those images, like, there's going to be a generation of members of Congress and politicians where there are thousands of images just around. And it's like, we're going to have to decide as a society if we're going to let that be some permanent like source of blackmail mm-hmm. that every person that has a grudge out for you for the rest of your life yeah. that you dated in college and then you go on to be a Democrat and their Republican is going to be able to like bring you down with. You know this would not fly if it was Republican. You just know it. You just know it. So that's number four media hypocrisy. They went after the reporter. They portrayed her as a victim. They called it revenge porn. Well, it's a female giving it up. They never say those words. And the simple fact, this is like the 15th example of a conservative website stumbling on, just like liberals do, a big story. And the media betters, they play it off like it's their story. Which is pretty fucked up. Especially considering if this was a liberal website, like Talking Points Memo, and it was a female reporter. We well, that's the sexist news media. These males took this hard-working woman's fucking work and passed it off as their own. It's it's at the end of the world. We can't do this anymore. Blah 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 blah. All right, here's a quick hit on 2020. I, I, they frame it so perfectly. Dems are moderates, and this impeachment, unlike Clinton, isn't partisan. Let me talk, Michael, about the top tier, because it was fascinating in our Meet the Press first read newsletter. They say that the race has narrowed to a clear top four because in national, Iowa, New Hampshire polls and fundraising, the names are the same. Biden, Warren, Sanders, Buttigieg. And when you break it down, all of them are white. Three are men, one woman. Three are 70 or older. The other is 37. One is gay. Only one is from outside a state on the East Coast or New England. None has won a statewide race outside the East Coast or New England, unless you count Biden running with Obama. None is from a state that has more than 11 electoral college votes. None are a current or former governor, and only one has served in the military. So when you look at the, you look at those numbers, first of all, you look at those candidates, and you look at the key Democratic question, which is, who can beat Trump? How should that list make Democrats feel? I mean, it should make Democrats a little worried. Uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg is someone who's a moderate but has little experience when it comes to actually governing. And so, you know, when Bernie Sanders talks about uh, giving away a lot of things, talks about Medicare for all, it opens up a vulnerability within the party. Democrats have to turn out voters. Republicans are going to turn out. The question is whether the Obama coalition, Democrats, independents, and kind of upset Republicans are going to show up this go around. They didn't in 2016. And Democrats need them to show up in 2020. Well, speaking of, of sort of those, those middle-of-the-road candidates, Mara, um, your paper is reporting uh, that they're following Amy Klobuchar's campaign. And following her, her performance in the debate, she's getting a, a second look from a lot of voters in Iowa. And, in fact, last night on Rachel Maddow, she announced that since then she's raised $2 million. Then you have, as we said, Pete Buttigieg, who has been climbing right. in the polls, who's also uh, bringing in a lot of money. Um, Are there two sort of legit challengers here to Joe Biden's sort of down the middle of the road um, candidacy, 
or is that wishful thinking on the part of their supporters? No, I, I think that uh, time will tell. But certainly, given that Joe Biden has stalled and, and fallen in the polls uh, and, and that his performance has been, quite frankly, weak on the campaign trail so far, um, I think folks who are on the more moderate side of the party are very interested in finding someone to fill that vacuum. And Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg, especially with their strong debate performance last week, um, seem really well poised, especially with Pete Buttigieg's uh, fundraising dollars, yeah. to, do, to do that. Give us a history lesson. Republicans' number one complaint seems to be that this impeachment inquiry is treating the president unfairly. They're arguing that Bill Clinton was treated much better in 1998. Are they right? No, they're not. Uh, Nixon actually uh, had a slightly more bipartisan experience with impeachment, and that was partly because of the era and partly because of a Tennessee Senator Howard Baker, uh, who decided that he would follow reason and not passion. He would actually follow the facts as opposed to reflexively deciding that his guy, his president, who had won a massive landslide in 1972, 40% uh, of Democrats in America voted for Richard Nixon in 1972. And oh. Baker asked the question uh, of, of the president uh, of AIDS, what did the president know and when did he know it? it? It gave the process a bit more legitimacy. The Clinton process was ferociously partisan. I personally don't think this one feels that way. Uh, I know the president wants us to have that conversation. I know he wants to m muddy everything up. And uh, that's one of the reasons I think Rudy Giuliani is continuing to roll around the countryside, uh, swerving his car to hit uh, people along the way. But the, the, the basic objection that somehow or another this is an unfair process and no, no legal rights or whatever it was the president said in that outrageous uh, comment is really doesn't have much standing. Uh, impeachment is uh, not a judicial process. If it were a judicial process, I think uh, there'd be a lot more uh, anti-Trump feeling than, it, than there is now. It is a political process. We'll begin here in Washington where the Justice Department is pursuing a criminal investigation into its own investigators, elevating what had been widely denounced as a conspiracy theory into the origins of the Mueller probe to a potentially threatening new level. The president, you know, has been calling this a hoax all along. Is this to validate his suspicions, his theory, or is there something more going on? Do we know who is being investigated? Well, it has certainly opened up President Trump to that type of criticism, Andrea. Particularly, you have Jerry Nadler saying, look, this is essentially the president using the Justice Department to attack his political enemy. The taint on this, because of all the politics involved and all the conspiracy theories that have been promulgated by one network and by the president. It has to be alarming, to certainly to the Democrats who are running this impeachment inquiry, that a whole other criminal investigation to some of the, the former officials who were front and center in the universally accepted conclusions about the origins of the Russia probe. Breaking overnight, investigating itself. The Justice Department now opening a full-blown criminal investigation into its own Russia investigation. Straight ahead, is it a legitimate inquiry or the president's political revenge? Democrats cried foul, accusing the president of using the Justice Department for his own political purposes. 
Democrats blasting the inquiry and Attorney General William Barr, who is overseeing it. Where is this investigation going? It, it makes no sense. Um, so bring it. Uh, bring it, Attorney General Barr. Congressman Jerry Nadler tweeting overnight, the Justice Department has now become a vehicle for President Trump's political revenge. This is raising some serious questions about whether the president is using the Justice Department to go after his enemies. Democrats are already crying foul. Overnight, the chairman of the House and Intelligence and Judiciary Committees issued a blistering joint statement accusing Barr of trying to help the president politically during those damaging impeachment proceedings. The Justice Department launches a criminal investigation of the Russia election probe. Why it raises new questions about the department's independence from the president. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler and House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff said... These reports, if true, raise profound new concerns that the Department of Justice under A.G. Barr has lost its independence and become a vehicle for President Trump's political revenge. The last one is Miss Mitchell once again, uh, uh, such a journalist. She's so down the middle. Calling this DOJ probe a uh, conspiracy theory. Well, here's Matt Woking. One source added the DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz's upcoming report on alleged FBI surveillance abuses against the Trump campaign will shed light on why Durham probe is criminal. There's That's a propaganda they're talking about. They're calling it Republican propaganda. But it's criminal. What they did was criminal. Every American who's not a partisan, right or left, knows what they did to the Trump campaign is against the law. There was no grounds to wiretap. And as we go on this journey, remember, Trump was conspiracy theorist, and then it came out, and they dropped it. I mean, they, they report it and drop it. And they move on. They don't want that out there. Greg Gutfeld sums up this whole impeachment very well. Weird times we live in. So much good news regarding the economy, jobs, median income, Middle East, North Korea, trade, prison reform, peace in general. Guess I'd impeach, too. Eh, it's true. Byron, New York. After Mueller, Dems worried, how can we turn this into a TV show that Americans understand? Finally gave up. Now with Eurocrane. In the meantime, Democrats are struggling with what to do if Republicans continue to disrupt depositions while impeachment investigators plan to collect evidence and methodically build their case by interviewing senior members of the Trump administration before moving to public action. Democrats' timeline to go public may be affected by Republican disruptions. The chief challenges to the Democrats is going public will be finding a compelling roster of witnesses to drive home the case against the president and making sure they do not mishandle what may be their best opportunity to sell voters on impeachment with a message that will resonate through the rest of the 2020 election season. And that's what it's about. I had a soundbite by Barbara Lee, the crazy black cowboy hat wearing psycho. They want the UN to monitor the election. I mean, they just know their, their internal polling isn't good. Elizabeth Warren will not win America. Biden's too old. Sanders is socialist. None of the other guys get any traction. I mean, you have your lips. This weekend I wore my I will not comply shirt. 
There's a guy in biker gear in a Walmart just looking at that shirt. He kept looking at the shirt. And finally I said, do you have a problem, sir? You keep staring at me. Is it the shirt? Yeah, me and my wife own ARs. I know people like you probably don't like that. But this is America, and I have the right to own it. I've broken no laws. I'm not a felon. And mine are under lock and key and don't shoot anybody up. So why don't you stop eyeballing me? And he turned beet red and walked away. He was just offended by that shirt. And it goes back to the gay shit. It goes to everything we talk about. Why you can't win is you impose your worldview on everybody. And that's not what Americans are for. That's not what Americans are about. It's not how it works. It just doesn't work that way. Invariably, when the right and the left push too hard on the American people, they are rejected. And it comes back to why Trump still has traction. The media has pushed so hard. The Democrats have done nothing but impeachment inquiries and smoking guns. And we've gone from Mueller to Ukraine. I mean, it has been nonstop faux outrage. Even if you had something, nobody believes it anymore. And for Meacham to literally say, a guy that usually is level-headed, this isn't partisan. Oh, really? It's been partisan since June 2016. You had protests the day of the inauguration saying you wanted to blow up the White House. You invented pussy hats. You have a cohort of terrorists beating people up in the country, be it Antifa or just normal people walking around believing they have the right to tell anybody wearing a red hat, go to hell. We've never been so partisan. And the entire media establishment has gone so far light left. As I say on the show, you're probably going to elect Trump. You're going to get him reelected. Because you're so extreme. Just extreme. Anyway, sorry about the phone. I thought it was off. Let's do some lighter fare and This Is America. AOC, Progressive Policies as an Ariana Dance Party. Thank you. Next, replace for-profit health insurance with Medicare for All. God is a woman, strike the Hyde Amendment. Break free, student loan debt forgiveness. Be all right. Pass a Green New Deal. It was a video with a song. And once again, they're trying to be hip and cool, but everything you just said. Medicare for All, nobody wants it. Abortions, federally funded, nobody wants it. Student debt loan, young kids want it, but it's not going to happen, and the Green New Deal is just socialism. So I had to put it in my funny, because you you can make it a music video that I'm not going to play. But at the end of the day, every one of those is a non-starter. That's why you're doing impeachment. You're so extreme, you have to. Norwegians told to pee and shower... Not for the reason that I pee in the shower on my feet to get rid of fucking athlete's foot. Sounds gross, but it works. No, to save water. Yeah, they're being told the earth is so bad off, you need to save water by peeing on your feet. John Legend and Kelly Clarkson, 
Baby, it's cold outside. Yeah, that's that's coming. We'll play it. <clears throat> it's getting released this holiday season with the oh-so-PC words. Oh, you got it. The war on Christmas continues. At least the war on the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. Wadu. Wadu who? At Wadu who is his handle. For sale. Selling my 80-year-old white privilege card since it did nothing for me. No free phone, welfare, food stamps, housing, health care, college. Will trade for a race card, which seems to get all that I didn't. If interested, tweet back for my non-Obama phone I pay for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. And our This Is America. We have two sound bites because I couldn't decide which one. First one's, they're both on The View. One is Joy Behar saying that the most patriotic thing is the impeachment. Yeah, she said it. And they had rapper T.I. on about cop shootings and white supremacy. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last sound bite. Like the media say when they are pushing the this is America in 2019. We saw it with the Kazir family. We saw it with Tulsi Gabbard last week, with Hillary Clinton calling her into question for this exact same thing, saying she was a Russian asset. And all of these, this language is like McCarthyism. So if you have a problem with what Laura Ingram did to Mr. Excuse me, I'm not finished. I know you're not, but I have to Mr. Vindum today. But you should have a problem because you're questioning people's loyalty to America who have fought and served. And Tulsi Gabbard enlisted after 9-11 and served for 12 months. And by the way, is currently in the Army National Guard. And we're questioning, Hillary Clinton's coming in questioning her loyalty to the United States. And now we're questioning his loyalty to the United States. She's not questioning her loyalty. Yes, she is. She called her a Russian asset. And she said that she was being groomed. I have the quote right here. And she's being groomed for a third party. She said, I'm not making making any predictions, okay, but she, I think they've got their eye, the Russians, on somebody who is currently in the Democratic primary and are grooming her to be the third party candidate. She's the favorite if of the you, Russians. If you are, but we're at this place in history where people on both sides are putting their party before this country. What do we stand I for? I agree so, with that. So when we're talking I don't about, see that. You don't see that? That the Democrats are putting the party, they're, they're having impeachment inquiries well, against somebody who let me, puts let me finish, let me finish. corruption against this okay, country. Well, we can disagree on that, that but you can, see right. it, you can see it everywhere. But when we talk about this Ukraine call, take the politics out. I beg people to do that because this is going to set a precedent for the way that we do foreign policy, the way that we conduct ourselves, what we stand for, for years and Nobody years to come. Nobody at the table is questioning I, the no, Ukrainian call. No, no. I, no I'm saying yeah. I'm yeah. frustrated because I don't understand how... Republicans, for example, can't see that as a problem, where you're either silent on it or you're now saying that this guy, uh, Vindham, who is an absolute uh, hero for this country right now, speaking out, you're saying that he's now a spy. I just don't know how we are in this place. When did it become more important for you to find a talking point to support this president and your party than it is to do what's right for all of us, because, collectively, as a country, for the people that fight for us? But you, know, you know what the I reason is, Abby? The reason is that the party is getting what it wants. But it's, but Low it's, taxes, anti 
by abortion, all judges, the things that they want, all the judges. But so they power. overlook, but they I overlook but I don't everything. Think it's everywhere. What do you mean it's everywhere? It's, it's not everywhere. everywhere. No. Well, I, 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 I don't Democrats never put their not party right now. The they're country. not. I, I don't think. I don't think you can, okay, can well, claim then. a false equivalency at this point yeah. in time. Horrific story, mm. uh, and this happens way too often. I just. I wonder your your thoughts on that, and and maybe most importantly, what do we do that we're not doing? How do we get out of this? How do we change it? Well, I don't have the, uh, I don't, you know, this is, you know, beyond me. I just, but I do know that it, I think it's systemic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's systemic that's and I, I believe there's an agenda. I think it's an agenda of white supremacy. That's, that's my true belief. These, this isn't haphazard. This doesn't just happen, uh, you know, once or twice perhaps, but the numbers that we have means that it is indeed intentional. Uh, one of the things that I think is psychiatric evaluations coming along with the position of, mm -hmm. of, of a policeman, mm -hmm. yeah. um, just as they have to continue to go through the academy to make sure that their hand-eye coordination and their physical skills mm -hmm. are up to par, I think psychiatrics is because that, that amount of authority has an effect on the psyche. If you look up mm. the Stanford experiment, you can see that it has oh, yeah. been mm. yeah. documented that that amount of authority has an effect on anyone's psyche. The president too and should he, go through that. Yeah. Well, you know, we're a little past, we're a little bit past <laughs> that. We're putting the, the cart before the horse on that. We just need yeah. to get him out of there and then deal with the next one. Yeah. First, I, I gotta say it, even though I say it way too much. When Dems are in the White House, all protests are astroturf, and it's disrespecting the office to point out facts. When Dems aren't <clears throat> in the White House, the highest form of patriotism is protest and impeachment. And the media is on board with that. So, yeah. Then the T.I. Uh, shooting. Let's just do one. Because <clears throat> first and foremost, do you remember a lot of cop shootings lately? Have we had any black people being shot? You know, my wife said something the other day, which would probably come off as racist to everything. But everything's racist, you know, so who gives a fuck? We just found out everything's racist. I mean, the latest thing that's racist is next week's fucking something else. They're going to find pens are racist because ink flows and it's black and it's horrible. But she, she's right. I know Obama, we had all sorts of cop shootings because blacks were so zealot because there was a black president. And he was always talking about racism and America's a racist country and getting them all fired up to be stupid. And I'm not saying all blacks, I'm just saying inner city African Americans would challenge cops all the time. Then we get under Trump and you don't have a lot. And she's right, you don't. Because they've been told from day one, everybody's now racist, everything's racist, and they're not challenging as much because the TV is talking the other way. It's not the president on the bully pulpit. But if you think about it, there's not been a lot of big, high-profile African-Americans being shot by those racist KKK cops. But when they get one, they run with it. So this is Noah Goldberg. <clears throat> and wait for the punchline. Breaking. A cop shot and killed a man selling T-shirts outside an East New York nail salon after work at the salon called cops to remove him, according to staffer from CM Alika Ampre Samuel in Brownsville, where people fairly shot a man inside a nail salon earlier tonight. Neighbors say he was a quiet guy who sold T-shirts. He was out all day trying to start a business, never bothered anybody. The man was fairly shot after he interfered with law, law enforcement arrest of another individual inside the salon. 
according to Chief Patrol. He allegedly used a metal chair to strike an officer who now is medically induced coma, a man pronounced dead at the scene. I'll never understand this. How are there so many trigger-happy, incompetent cops? I'm appreciative and respect the good very few cops, but this is out of control. This is not okay. Another one, Alika Samprim Samuel. A little after 5.30 this afternoon, there was a police-involved shooting in my district. My condolences to the family and the victim. We must work harder to be better community and police relationship. And here's the story. A man entered Goldmine Nail Salon at Mother Gaston Boulevard near Sutter Avenue at 4, 5.40 p.m. trying to use the bathroom, according to police. The man did not get into the bathroom, though. It's not clear if the salon workers did not allow him in. The man then began to urinate on the floor of the salon, cops said. Employees of the salon asked two uniform officers who were on patrol to remove the man, according to police. When they realized he had an open warrant, police began to arrest the man, but he resisted arrest, they said. That's when Kawisi Ashun, who was selling t-shirts off the salon, got into the fray, beginning a violent struggle with the responding officers, according to NYPD. Police attempted to tase Ashton, but said it was ineffective. Ashton then struck one of the officers to the head with a metal chair. Police said, that was their story. So you heard what they tweeted, people's reply. So the quiet guy who sold t-shirts who never bothered anybody picked up a metal chair and hit one of the responding officers over the head with it several times. And police use a taser first to no effect. Educated hillbilly breaks it down. A police officer was beaten so severely he's in a coma in a hospital. During the savage beating, he was able to shoot the man trying to kill him. This is how the press, press report it. The guy attacked a cop and put him in a fucking coma. Tell the damn truth. So you're not going to tell about the part where the guy smacks a cop over the head with a metal chair, putting him into coma? What kind of import? That's kind of an important detail. Wall Street Journal. New York PD officer in coma after violent arrest and fatal shooting of the suspect. Then others start pointing out this article, which is written like a journalist would write it. You may want to read the article instead of just headline. They weren't called on the t-shirt seller. They were attacked by him while trying to arrest someone else who had peed in the corner. Yep, that's exactly what happened. They wanted him off the property because he was selling t-shirts, so the cops just walked up and shot him. I'm pretty sure the cop just spit on his dead body also and burned the shirts because they weren't his favorite color. I really liked the part where you didn't mention that he beat the officer so hard with a metal chair that the officer had to be put in a medically induced coma to save his life. That guy deserved what he got. Is that really what happened, Noah? I mean, are you really sure that's what you want to go with? Just making sure this is how you want to take this. Last chance. Is this the right way to spin it? And that's every cop shooting. They show a 10-second clip that's favorable to cops or killing people. They write an article that tells the truth, but they headline it with social justice fucking virtue signaling that black people are being killed by cops. And it's never true. So a cop who's trying to arrest a guy who's pissing on the floor, who has warrants, gets beaten almost to death by a guy after trying to tase and everything. He's still beating He shoots him, which kills him, and the cops are racist now. And not even included in this was the race of the cops. None of that's actually there. I remember Baltimore, they were mostly blacks. 
And the media still would put their pictures on the TV and say, cops are all racist white guys with KKK hoods going out lynching. So that's why it's This Is America. This shit is fucking like everything else we talk about. The left doesn't have to live in facts. It's all emotion. It's all pandering. It's all fear-mongering to try to get people to vote. And they're allowed to do it always. And I don't understand why. Because it's more dangerous. I mean, AOC can sit and say the Daily Caller's a bunch of white supremacists. The Daily Caller's been doxxed, had Antifa go after the reporters. Nobody cares. But Trump says the fake news media, and we have to listen to 89,000 hours of he's endangering the press. Yeah. So, basically, this episode can be framed by hypocrisy. From a killing of a terrorist, to sit-ins, to Democratic congressmen fucking being able to do whatever they want. And it's all, go after the messenger. Everything I just said, if you flipped it to Democrats or liberal sources, my God in heaven, it would never stop playing on CNN. So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share with your family and friends and send comments about the track to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. FOPpodcast, gmail.com. You can get the show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and Pocket Cast. Remember to check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and our Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. We're going to shoot for our next podcast to be the 5th of November, Year of Our Lord, 2019. Due to the fact that it's fucking Wednesday. <clears throat> we got Halloween tomorrow. I got shit this weekend. We'll push it to Tuesday. <clears throat> I got a recall on my Jeep Monday. And I got a doctor's appointment Tuesday. But I'll be done by around 10 o'clock and start recording. And we'll grab a whole nother week of fucking stupid shit. Until then, stay warm if you're in the cold zone. Make sure to disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yes. And tune back in next Tuesday for another show. As always, thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Makes every day count. Thank you.